Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Jane Jones. Jane is a former teacher and head of maths who is now the HMI National Lead for Mathematics. Yes, Jane is an Ofsted inspector and a vastly experienced one at that. Now, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, over the last two years I have significantly changed my approach to teaching. And frequently, when I present these new ideas to teachers, I hear things like, yeah, that's all well and good, but Ofsted wouldn't like it. Well, here was my perfect opportunity to find out if that really is the case. So, in an epic three-hour interview, we covered the following things and much more besides. Just before we get into talking observations, I turn the tables on Jane and ask her to think about a lesson she taught that didn't go to plan, and what did she learn from the experience. Then, in Ofsted's eyes, what makes a successful maths lesson? We then go off on a tangent and talk about the difficulties of teaching reasoning and problem solving. What does good differentiation look like? Jane describes the best practices she's seen for teaching GCSE resets, something I have never felt I've done at all well at. I asked Jane, is engagement important? Can you observe it? And if so, how? When an inspector speaks to students about maths, what kinds of things do they ask and what are they hoping students will say? We then clear up some Ofsted myths, and I try to sign Jane up to my Ban Maths Displays campaign, with mixed success. Then we turn our attention to marking, feedback and workload, as I attempt to tease out of Jane what good marking and feedback looks like. I ask Jane, are maths lessons perceived differently if they're observed by a specialist versus a non-math specialist? What advice does Jane have for heads of maths and for line managers? What does a good math scheme of work look like? What does an effective transition between year six and year seven look like? And finally, Jane offers up three pieces of advice for all teachers before reflecting on what she wished she knew when she first started teaching that she knows now. Now, I flipping loved this conversation. Jane was a superb guest. She's down to earth and really understands the pressures of both teaching maths and being a head of department because she's been there herself. So whether you are preparing for an inspection, just had one, or are genuinely interested in Ofsted's views on teaching and learning in mathematics, then this is the episode for you. I personally felt refreshed and reassured. Just before we crack on, and you know what's coming here, I just wanted to mention my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, which is being published by John Cat Educational. I have been incredibly fortunate to receive positive reviews from the likes of Dylan William, Doug Lemoff, Joe Morgan, Danny Quinn, Will Emney, Bruno Reddy, and Peps McRae, as well as a foreword by Chris Bolton. The book comes in at a whopping 150,000 words. 135,000 of which are Chris's foreword. Only messing. Anyway, it is everything I have learnt over the last two years. I'm dead proud of it, and I really hope those of you who choose to snap it up will enjoy it. 
Anyway, enough of that, as we have an epic interview ahead of us. So, without further ado, let me introduce Jane Jones, the HMI National Lead of Mathematics. Apologies in advance, the sound quality is a little ropey at times, but hopefully it does not detract too much from the quality of what Jane says. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Jane, so we start as ever with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, this is uh, something I've not been asked before, Craig, so it's great. Um, <laughs> when I thought about it, and I decided to go for 11. I have got more than one favourite, but I've gone for 11 because it's a prime number, but mainly because of its patterns, you know, when you square it and you cube it, although obviously those do break down, but I think they've got some nice patterns. And also, one-elevenths and two-elevenths, the fractions, the decimal representations of those fractions have got some nice recurring patterns in them as well. So, so I think overall, that's my favourite number. Nice choice. We've never had 11 on here. We, we often get primes, but never 11. So, yeah, lovely choice, that, Jane. And question number two, uh, what was your favourite topic in maths when you were a student? Do, do, when you say student, that, that sort of conjured back university days for me um, but then I thought no I'll go back into sixth form and I enjoyed uh, algebra and calculus at university I enjoyed real analysis but I also enjoyed complex numbers so the idea that you could um, create a number that was the square root of minus one and we call that I that to me was a fantastic uh, step forwards from the sort of one-dimensional real numbers into two-dimensional numbers and their representations. So I thoroughly enjoyed complex numbers. Going back into O-level, because I'm old enough to have done O-level, <laughs> not CCSE, um, something that's now back on the curriculum, I studied uh, matrices and doing transformations using matrices. I just thought that was so elegant that you could capture a rotation or a reflection or an enlargement by a, by a matrix. So I, I enjoy all that as well. And have you always liked maths, Jane, like ever since a really, really young age? Yes, I think so. Um, I didn't learn an awful lot of maths when I was at primary school. It was a quite a narrow curriculum. It was very much arithmetic-based. But when I went to secondary school, I was lucky enough to study what was then called modern mathematics. And it was right at the beginning of... of modern mathematics so uh, that's where the matrices and things came in whereas a lot of my peers were studying a much more traditional curriculum so yes yes i have always enjoyed maths got it superb and, and final speed dating question is what would you like to do if you weren't involved in the wonderful world of education <laughs> yeah this is a, a really interesting question as well i think um an alternative path to studying mathematics might have been medicine i come from a a family where there's a lot of medics but um but i didn't go that route and i'm really really pleased i didn't because mathematics has been a wonderful world for me and then into education was just fantastic the thing i probably always wanted to do though when i was a teenager was was uh, be a professional show jumper or an event rider or something like that so but i'm very glad i didn't because i wasn't very good at that and i just had a pretty rotten living from it i think so it's a better hobby than it is a career for me 
Superb, flip it out. Well, that, that teases up nicely, Jane, um, to talk a little bit about your career. So can you just take us briefly through the steps involved uh, from, from how it all started from you to, to where you are now? Yeah, yeah, well, um, I've got quite an unusual sort of career path because I studied mathematics at university in, in London, mm. London University. Uh, I got a BSc and an MSc in mathematics. And while I was studying uh, both the final year of my undergraduate degree and my MSc, I was involved in supporting students who were um, in the early days of studying mathematics and also those who were doing science degrees who hadn't got A-level mathematics. And I really enjoyed supporting students in their learning of mathematics to support their other subjects. So that, I I felt, you know, yes, I think I think I can actually do this. I think I can... Um, explain things in ways that that help people to understand. So that that sort of made me think about teaching at that stage, which I hadn't done previously. Um, and then I was going to do a PGCE um, when I when I finished my masters, but I got a letter from a local school saying was I interested in a late vacancy, and I thought I'll go along and have a look. So so I went along and had a look and met the staff and was so taken by the staff in the school that I agreed I would um, start teaching uh, straight from university because in those days, like now, there was a shortage of mathematicians, maths teachers, and you could actually go straight into teaching, but you had to do two years of probationary teaching instead of one. So I walked out of the out of university into a, a comprehensive school that was probably one of the most challenging in the northwest and there were a lot of disadvantaged students there and my uh, learning curve was a sort of a vertical line i think probably <laughs> it was it was quite tricky so i went straight into teaching um i have later studied uh, for a master's in education as well and done one or two diplomas too so that was my first teaching experience and as i say it was it was um, it was difficult, but I learned a lot, and I learned a lot from the colleagues I worked with. They were just fantastic, and uh, and so that was a really good start. Uh, I've taught uh, three other comprehensive schools, all 11 to 18 schools. Sorry, two of them were comprehensive, and one was independent. So I have worked in the independent sector. While my children were little, uh, I had a, a gap away from teaching, but I worked part-time at that stage, and and worked a little in primary, and I also worked in higher education um, on the mathematics and IT sides of things, as well as on the professional side. And um, I've also been involved in examining. I've been a principal examiner for several years, and in the days when there was an organisation called QCA, I also provided advice for QCA as a scrutineer. So, so I've had a, um, a lot of very varied sort of maths experience, and way back in 2001, I applied for a post of HMI uh, through my specialism of mathematics. And I've been in HMI ever since. Um, when I started in HMI, I was in a division called the School Improvement Division, because in those days, Her Majesty's inspectors worked in different areas of specialism. So I worked not as a mathematician, but as a more of a general sort of inspector, but working with schools that that were in difficulties of various different kinds. 
and it taught me a huge amount. I'm so lucky and so privileged to have um, worked alongside those schools that were on the way to getting better, and it just taught me so much about school improvement. And then in 2006, I was lucky enough to be appointed to the the senior maths role within Ofsted, and I've, I've held that role ever since. But I don't just do mathematics, I do school inspection and initial teacher education inspection as well as the mathematics role. So, so I've just been so lucky in my career, it's been very rich and very rewarding. Flipping out, that's a, a fantastic journey that Jane, and we're going to be digging in obviously to the inspection side of things a little later on, but I want I want to take you back to your teaching days first, and I, maybe a bit of a painful memory this for you, but I wonder if there are any particularly bad lessons that you taught that spring to mind, and what I'm always interested in is when I ask guests to, to reflect back on lessons that didn't, didn't go quite as well as they planned, is, is why didn't it, and what did they learn from the process, so d- does anything spring to mind there Jane? <laughs> yes, I've sort of rootled around in my in my memory. Um, I think that, I think one's memory is very good at forgetting things that aren't very nice. <laughs> but I'm quite sure I had an awful lot of lessons that didn't work well, and um, particularly sort of in the early days, um, I did struggle with at times with behaviour management um, as, as a new teacher in a in quite a tough school. Um, but I do remember one particular lesson where I had a sort of a um, head-to-head with one of the challenging equivalents of year 10 pupils. And in the end, I got her to be able to do, answer the questions I wanted her to answer. And right, and I, it took about five or ten minutes in this sort of to and froing between us. And at the end, she grinned at me and she said, you're learning, miss. You're learning. <laughs> you little monkey. Um but uh, I think the, apart from struggling with, with getting my presence in the classroom sorted out, um, I think I didn't always pitch things right. I, I think, you know, something that I thought when I'd learned it, I'd found quite easy. I don't think I anticipated how, how difficult some children might find things to learn. So I think some of my errors were... Um, to do with, with pitching things wrongly or um, perhaps an approach I thought was sort of straightforward wasn't. And I think you, you learn from your mistakes. Um, but, but I think one of the difficulties when you're a new teacher is that if, if a class is challenging in behaviour and you make mistakes, you have to live with that class you know, for quite a long time. So, so learning quickly from your mistakes is very important, I think. Yeah, you're right there, and it's it's interesting you mentioned about pitching. I've I've spoken on this podcast many a time about how that that was a key error I made for the first good few years of my lesson, just uh, sorry of my teaching career, just because I I wasn't experienced in the kind of mistakes students would make. They weren't the kind of mistakes I'd made when I I was learning maths, and it's your classic curse of knowledge thing that we as experts often find it hard to appreciate what it's like not to know the things that that um, other people don't. So I, I wonder, Jane, you, you talked about kind of how experience is the key. Um, is there any kind of advice you'd, you'd give to, to younger teachers struggling with that with that specific problem, with that needing to, to get it at the right pitch, not making lessons too difficult or not making approaches too difficult? What, what, what was it that, that kind of helped get you better at that? Well, there was, um, I've worked a lot with a, with a, with another teacher whose first name was was Beryl, and I learned to ask her what what are the things that they will find difficult? What are the mistakes 
that they make. When you've taught this before, you know, what, what's been the bit that's been difficult? Uh, what's, what have the stumbling blocks been? And I think if, if teachers, more experienced teachers, can spend time talking to less experienced teachers, and I would add in non-specialist teachers to that as well, about what it is that, that students find difficult. It's not about avoiding those things. It's, a, it's allowing them to happen, but being able to support the learning through it, um, I think it's really important. Got so I think advice I'd give is, if you're an inexperienced teacher, ask other people, if you've not taught something before, what are the stumbling blocks? And what would you recommend? What approaches? You know, I can think of this approach or that approach. What's the advantage and disadvantages of those approaches? This is a really good scheme of work. It might um, it might already suggest different approaches. So, so think about the approaches. Think about the mistakes. Ask other teachers. You know, where possible, work in a pair with another teacher who's got a similar class. Yeah, that's, I think that's what I would advise. Yeah, I, th- I think you're spot on there. I think teaching in isolation can make it one of the, the hardest and, and worst jobs in the world and, and tapping into others' experiences. Yeah, it's very sound advice there, Jane. And I, I wonder, because I, I was just thinking that you must have seen pr- probably more than any other guest I've had on, on, and possibly even more than any other person in the country, you must have seen an incredible number of maths lessons over the years. So I wonder, kind of reflecting back now on, on all the hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of lessons, and specifically maths lessons, that you've seen if you were to kind of start your teaching career again how would your planning process change at all based on on all the things that you've seen yeah yeah i think it would um i think one of the really important things about planning is is not to plan single lessons i think it's about planning sequences of lessons and again i think that we're going to talk i know later on about subject leaders but but getting um being able to use a good scheme of work or textbook scheme or something as a, as a basic structure is really important. But the sort of things that are around these days, which weren't around when I first was teaching, and the, the sort of IT that's available, now just because you use IT doesn't make it good. Um, <laughs> but when I think about the difficulty students have, for example, with um, envisaging uh, three-dimensional shapes, so you're teaching 3D trig or something like that, or rotations, and there's some really good um, IT that can support learning in some topics. It just shouldn't be used sort of blanket. Uh, I think I would now love to make more use of practical apparatus to support conceptual understanding and, again, visualisation. I think that would be great to have that sort of opportunity. Um, but I don't think I'd change a huge amount because fundamentally it's about sequencing the learning and making links and building. So I don't think I change a huge amount. Um, yeah. Got it. No, that's, that's fantastic. And it's, it's interesting you talk about the, the, the kind of lesson not being the ideal unit of planning. And it's more about looking at sequences. And that, that's been a recurring theme that a lot of guests have spoken about. And we're, we're definitely going to dig into that a bit more later on in the interview, Jane. But I want to turn now... Thing, Chris, I was... might be that, um, that choosing the exercises or examples or questions that you want uh, pupils to do when they're sort of working independently choosing those really carefully because each one should earn its place so it, it's very tempting i think to to pull off sort of 10 questions you know off a sheet or something and just say just do these 10 but actually they're much better to say 
I'd like you to do number one and number seven and number nine. And inside your head as a teacher, you know exactly why you want them to do those ones because it will sort of deepen and extend their learning. You don't just want them to tread their way through those, those ten questions. So I, I think that's the other thing that I have learned. Um, I think I might also want to introduce problem-solving better across all topics. I think perhaps if I go back to the sort of early days of my teaching career, I probably went down the practice the, the different technique route for perhaps too long sometimes. That's interesting. I would give my IT for a visualizer. I think they're fantastic. I would love to have had a visualizer in my classroom. <laughs> well, you, you, you've kind of hit on two things that are obsessions of mine, the, the choice of examples or, or exercises for kids to do and, and problem solving. And we're definitely going to touch on problem solving later on. But just on that one that you mentioned there about um, if there's 10 questions, not necessarily letting kids do all 10, but, but kind of handpicking ones out. Do, do you think, Jane, that this is, a, this is an argument for kind of more use of good textbooks in lessons because this is something I've only been teaching 13 years but I remember in my first couple of years textbooks were all over the place and now you you do well to find one being used in in lessons sometimes perhaps a little bit more in the last couple of years with the, with the new GCSE but that a good textbook if it's done well has got a really carefully sequenced carefully chosen uh, pattern of, of examples and exercises for, for students to do whereas if you pull off download a worksheet from tears or just get something off off the internet often it's 10 randomly chosen uh, questions there's no connections between the two there's not there's not a careful progression of difficulty so i mean did, is, is there an argument for, for perhaps returning to textbooks purely for those well-sequenced exercises and examples that you talk about there, Jane? Or, or, or is it an argument for teachers writing their own instead of kind of pulling stuff off tears and stuff like that? I don't think teachers have got time to write their own. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't want to put that burden on, but equally I wouldn't want to be in a position where Ofsted says that uh, textbooks should be the norm. Yes. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about good textbooks and textbooks as a, a carefully sequenced with well-chosen examples. And there's evidence, isn't there, from other countries who have been successful with mathematics teaching and outcomes um, that quite often there have been very well thought through textbooks and support materials for teachers that have sat alongside that curriculum development. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm not against uh, a good textbook at all. I think, I think they, they can really help teachers. Super, fantastic. Well, the, the kind of structure of this interview I want to do, Jane, is is like we hear a lot of things about Ofsted and I'm often told whenever I give talks or workshops or just speak to colleagues and I suggest something, often a response I get is, but Ofsted won't like this. So I can't do that because Ofsted won't like it. So what I want to get to the bottom of here is is, is what do Ofsted like and, and why do they like it? And the, the first area is, is an obvious one I want to talk about and that's lesson observations. So just to kind of set the ball rolling, I wonder if you could perhaps sum up um, in as much detail as you like, what exactly is an inspector hoping to see on a maths lesson? Okay, I've got to be really careful how I, how I phrase things because it's so <laughs> easy to, to, um, to get things turned into this is what Ofsted wants. Yes. You know? And uh, Sean Harford, who's um, sort of our head of our education directorate, um, it's very clear that we don't look for 
particular things. Gone are the days, well gone are the days where inspectors expected to see three-part lessons, for example. We're not there to impose a particular view on, on how teachers teach. So our focus always is on how well the pupils are learning and obviously it's the teacher's job to teach them. So, so our focus is, is always on learning. In terms of what we take into account when we are observing teaching, um, there's a, a very long paragraph. It's now number 171 in our inspection handbook, um, which lists the things that uh, inspectors will consider when they're looking at mathematics within a whole school inspection. Um, so there's things like the sort of leading issues and management um, dimension of uh, how consistently good is the quality of teaching. Because sometimes when we go in uh, to a school and I might see several maths lessons or parts of several lessons, and too much depends on the individual teacher that the pupil has got, rather than, um, so there's a lack of consistency in some schools. So you might be lucky enough to be taught by an absolutely fantastic teacher, um, or you might be unlucky and be taught by somebody whose skills are much more sort of limited. Uh, so, so one of the things that inspectors have to consider is, is how, how the school works to support teachers whose skills are not as well developed as others so that all the pupils in the school get a good deal. Uh, and then there's things like, you know, how well does the teaching balance teaching for understanding as well as teaching for proficiency? And do all pupils get good opportunities to solve problems and to reason? So there's, there's all those sorts of things. But it's all in that paragraph 171, which has just recently been republished. Okay, well, it's interesting this, Jane, because early on in that answer, you said something again that, that fascinates me, and it's it's not about the lessons, it's about the learning. So I guess the natural question to ask you there is, is how on earth do you observe learning, Jane? <laughs> yes, that's, that's, a, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, I, can I just go back, though, just to add one thing? Of um, course. Um, one of the things I do get asked you know, is the question, you know, what, what, do, what do inspectors expect to see? And I have, um, when I do talks, I have a slide that, um, I, ask, I ask people at the conference this question, and I show a slide that says, and I'll quote from it, Ofsted expects teachers to use their subject and pedagogical expertise to provide high-quality teaching and curricular experiences in order to secure the best possible learning and outcomes for their pupils. And I have had a little bit of grief in the past um, <laughs> on Twitter, um, I'm sure other uh, IT um, vehicles are available um, <laughs> about this, but I, I, I continue to say it because I really believe it's the teacher's job to decide what's the best way to teach mathematics for the pupils in my class in this particular topic or whatever. And I think that's what I meant behind that, and that is what Arctic expects teachers to do. And there's no style and there's no approach that, that embodies that expectation. What, what kind of grief so, do you get about it, Jane? Like, what, what don't people like about that? I'm not sure, but there have been some criticisms about... I think they think perhaps it's too airy-fairy, I don't know. Ah, right, um, OK. Possibly. 
but but you know as soon as you start saying well you know this this particular approach is a good approach and that approach isn't then 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 you're in a position of of um, having one preferred style and in all those thousands of lessons I've observed I've observed teachers who sort of stood at the front for pretty well the whole lesson and and they've they've talked for almost the whole lesson and yet actually um, the pupils have, have really learned. Um, and then at the other end of the sort of spectrum, I've seen classes where the teachers hardly said a word and the, and the children are sitting around tables in groups and working on open-ended activities and their learning has been fabulous. And, and, I've, and I've seen teachers doing those same sort of styles where the learning's been a disaster in both cases and everything in between. So there isn't a particular approach that works for all children and all teachers, you know. So, so we can't say that one particular approach is, is much better than another. Um, but it's all about impact on on learning. Well, so that's, back to learning. we <laughs> do. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not letting you get away with this. This learning yeah. here, Jane, because I'm. I'm. As I say, I'm obsessed by this. So, go, go on then. How how are we observing this learning taking place? Okay. Um, I think learning is easier to observe than progress because progress is something we measure. So, so that's why I would use the word learning. So, when I when I'm observing lessons uh, on observing teaching and learning, I'm looking to see do the pupils understand this co- this this concept or this method that the teacher is teaching, or have they have they got a misconception? Um, are they able to articulate that understanding can they can they apply you know if there's a problem set do they know what the mathematics is that's sitting inside that problem and can they pull out that mathematics and use it in order to solve the problem um, if they make a mistake uh, do they do they panic or do they think oh okay that's not worked can I can I go back and actually try again try something else um, how ready are they to actually persevere with something? I think persevering in mathematics is, is really important. Or the minute a teacher sets a task, do all the hands sort of go up and say, "I'm stuck. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know how to get into this particular problem or this particular activity." So, so learning, I think, is about, is about understanding the concepts and developing the skills. And then learning how to communicate and, and solve problems and reason. So I think that's what learning's about. And you mentioned that you've seen lots of different approaches to teaching, and, and sometimes the learning's been great, and sometimes the learning's been a disaster. So, what what would kind of a disastrous learning experience look like, Jane? What are, what are some of the features of, of those lessons where where things don't go so well there? Well, I, I have seen quite a lot in between. There aren't very many where it's disastrous. Um, but I think there's quite a few lessons I see where, where it could be better with perhaps um, quite a few sort of small changes. The disastrous ones are usually where, where behaviour management tips it over the edge as well as the teaching having weaknesses. So it's a combination of the teaching being yes. weak and behaviour management being weak is usually where it's disastrous. But we don't judge teaching in individual lessons anymore. So there's yes. gone over the days of disastrous lessons. Um, I do see quite a lot of teaching which is mathematically accurate but is based on teaching 
pupils how to do something, a small something, a part of the maths curriculum, um, and they're taught sort of in a recipe. So you, you do this, you do this, and you do this, and now you're going to do an exercise, and all the exercises are very similar. So, so that it's a sort of like a recipe, just following a recipe without having to think very much. And what happens then is that the pupils can do that particular topic, um, but but it's learned in isolation. So it, it doesn't pro- provide a basis for going deeper or building on the next day if they don't understand why it is they're doing the different steps. So they need they need the why as well as the how. And quite often, I think, especially, I think, at Key Stage 4, and I think it's the pressures of GCSE, there's, there's quite a lot of teaching, and probably in Year 6 as well, the pressures for tests. There's quite a lot of teaching that's saying, this is what I think the questions might look like, and I'm going to teach you how to answer exam questions or test questions. But the trouble is that then depends on uh, people's memories having to memorise a particular method in order to be able to do the question. And then when you add up the sum total of all of the things that people have to memorise, you, you simply can't do it. People cannot memorise the whole of the maths curriculum. And the best learning, yes, has proficiency in it, but it also has the understanding because, as a pupil once said to me, if you can understand things, you can work things out for yourself. But if you don't understand, you can't. You're just reliant on memory. So I think where, where, the, where the teaching is recipe-based and all the, all the work that people do are very, very similar, so they're not being equipped to think for themselves, then I think that's the teaching that holds back people for their futures. That's interesting, that. And I'm going to take a little diversion here from the kind of proposed order, because we're, we're venturing into the grounds of teaching for understanding here, Jane. And I think it's yeah. it, it seems sensible just to mention it here, because, uh, again, you, you've kind of touched upon this, but I saw you at a recent conference in London, and, and you said that um, teaching only for proficiency does not equip students for the future. Um, can you just, just, just talk a little bit more about the, the kind of sentiment behind that, Jane? It, it links to this business about about memory um, because if you're if you're teaching pupils a whole set of um, methods and techniques and and then they are presented with exams and they they can sometimes they can sometimes succeed in exams but what you haven't got is the basis for any further learning so if you've only learnt to solve an equation or to do Pythagoras' theorem by putting this number here and that number there and then this step and this step and this step, then when you get into a problem that you don't recognise because it's different to problems that you've seen before or questions you've seen before, you don't, you don't have the understanding to be able to piece together the steps for yourself. And what we need in this country is for pupils to be able to think mathematically and, and as soon as you get the teaching why things work and teaching for understanding, then you get the power of generality. And mathematics is not about the specific, it's about the general. It's about building um, ideas and linking ideas from one to the other. Yes, it's hierarchical, but it also spreads out and links sideways. And, and that's the power of mathematics. 
It's not about a memory test. Now, this this is this is interesting, this James. This, this may maybe our first uh, disagreement of, of, of the interview, which is which is always a good thing. Um, <laughs> I, I completely agree that um, teaching for understanding is important, but I would I think I would argue that that often, and I think it's more often than not. That sometimes how to do something has to come before knowing necessarily why it's done and indeed like former podcast guest chris bolton he goes further he says that it's always the case that the how should come before the why and i think dan willingham he talks about the development of inflexible knowledge being so important and knowledge needs to be inflexible students need to know it how what how something works in a, a kind of limited um scenario before they can develop these skills of generalizing and so on just to get their confidence up and i, and I know I've, I've taught many a lesson where I mean you mentioned Pythagoras Pythagoras is a great example I've, I've introduced Pythagoras trying to explain why it works and showing kind of geometrical proofs and all this and by the time I then actually come to getting kids to actually carry out some Pythagoras calculations the, the confidence is rock bottom because they don't have a flipping clue what's going on because the, the concept of, of why it works is so much more difficult than actually being able to, to perform the calculations. So I think I would argue that, that more often than not, kids knowing how to do something is absolutely fine for that to come before they necessarily fully understand why they should do it because if you present the why first sometimes they end up not understanding the why and then not having the confidence um, or the morale or whatever you want to call it to, to then fully engage to understand the how part so yeah I think I would I would argue that the order needs to come the other way around but I'm guessing you don't agree Jane <laughs> Actually, I think we're using the word why in slightly different ways. Okay. So, uh, let's let's think about the Pythagoras example. Yes. So, I've seen, um, for example, there was one lesson I observed where the teacher explained they were going to learn Pythagoras' theorem that day, and then they all drew a, a three, four, five triangle, or three, a base of three and a height of a height of four triangle and they all measured the, the hypotenuse uh, to get five and then the teacher said that's Pythagoras' theorem and then they all wrote down a squared plus b squared equals c squared or something similar to that and then they did a, a stack of examples and one pupil stuck his hand up and said does the triangle have to be right angled sir um, which I thought was a good question since yes. it hadn't been raised and, and a lot of the uh, students thought that um, that they had to be consecutive numbers. So, so there was no why whatsoever in that explanation. Now, I've also seen um, in the teaching of Pythagoras where, and I, and I go back to teaching it myself, I suppose, and I've seen it taught in Finland as well, where it was taught a bit differently. Um, but the, the sort of why I'm thinking of is if you are going to introduce the formula and you present the formula as your starting point, this is Pythagoras' theorem, this is what it means, these are the sides, this is the hypotenuse, this is the name we give to the longest side, why is it the longest side, etc. And then when you come to actually use Pythagoras to, to find out the length of the missing side, which usually will be the hypotenuse first, um, it might be the case that when, when they then go on to find the shorter side, pupils are then told that when you find a shorter side, you subtract. They're not, they're not um, told why do you subtract. Right. So I'm thinking of the whys of the individual steps, not, you know, as well as the why. I wouldn't, I don't think, start with a proof, because I think you're right. 
that um, a proof presented by the teacher would possibly turn off a lot of children and lose a lot of children. So I'm not saying you should start with a proof, but I think the reasons for the steps are important and, and should always be built. And the other thing which I'm really keen on, and there's a, there's a saying out there, I think, somewhere that you should never go from the specific to the general, but I think in mathematics you can go from the specific to the general. You know, so sometimes, you know, you might do a particular solution to something when you're presenting it as a, a mathematically, but I would want teachers to talk about the individual steps of that solution. I'm not just meaning Pythagoras, I mean whatever you're teaching. You know, if, if the teacher talks through those particular steps, but talks through them in general terms, so it's not just this number and that number, it's about what those numbers represent. So you get a sort of a more of a general method coming out of it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it, make, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I wonder as well, Jane, because one thing that I reckon I, I made a mistake with for, God, probably about eight or nine years of my career is I would... I would be very reluctant to tell students something without first giving them the opportunity to, and, and discovers the wrong word, but I'm going to use it for, for the sake of this. I would be reluctant to tell students something without giving them the opportunity to discover it themselves or suggest it themselves or experiment it with themselves. So Pythagoras, again, no, another great example there that you brought up. When we are moving on to the method for finding a non-hypotenuse, I would always throw it out there, right? Can anybody come up with a method for finding a, a, the, one of the shorter sides if we've got the hypotenuse and one of the other shorter sides? And inevitably what would happen would be, it would take kind of five or 10 minutes and there would be lots of wrong answers suggested, lots of discussions and debate, and eventually we get to the right answer. But what I've come to realize, I think recently, is that often that can do more damage than, than good in the sense that, it takes time. Students get confused. There can be misconceptions floating around that if knowledge isn't secure can be quite difficult to, to resolve further on in the process. And I'm now leaning towards more, and I don't do this all the time, but more often than not, when there's something really important that I need students to understand clearly and carefully and as unambiguously as possible, more often than not, I'm leaning towards explaining it myself in words that I've chosen carefully using animations or whatever it will be that I've prepared carefully, as opposed to giving students that opportunity to come up with it, it themselves first. And it feels wrong. It feels kind of completely against what I've done for, for most of my career, but I'm certainly finding it's leading to less confusion and students seem to understand and learn things more. So again, I wonder what's, what's your view on, on that, Jane, on, on kind of teachers taking a more prominent role in, in telling things students and explaining things to students, whereas in the past, perhaps they would have given students the opportunity to, to do it themselves. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense or not. It makes complete sense. And uh, I'm sitting here smiling as you're <laughs> talking about it, because of course, Ofsted has no preferred approaches. Okay? Yes, yes. So, um, so I need to say that first. But um, yes, I think, you know, the teacher explaining things really well and being really clear about those important concepts that they want to, they want students to understand. But if we go back to, you know, how you said you used to do it, um, you know, where you take an enemy to come up with. Yes. Um, I think that that perhaps lacked clarity about, if you don't mind me saying. No, definitely About no. exactly what you wanted. So there's a bit of a, it was too open. Um, and that perhaps if you had presented a question where 
um, they needed to find one of the shorter sides. And you could then have a discussion, what's the same and what's different about this question? Why, why is it, why is it you, you, you feel a bit stuck? You know, so that if you gave them the hypotenuse on another side and sort of left them to do that question, some of them will still add up the two and come up with some ridiculous answer. And then when they come to think about it, they'll realise that couldn't possibly be the answer for one of the shorter sides. But also, they then can um, think about, well, how does this connect with what we've done before? So if yes. a squared plus b squared equals c squared, then it must be the case that c squared minus a squared equals c squared, for example, just to use the general terms. So rather than just throwing it open and say, can anybody think of a method? Although that, you know, it might be that that's how teachers work and people aren't really used to that method. It might be the case of, now try this one. What's the stumbling block? What is different about this question to ones you've done before? How is it different? So how are we going to be able to work it out? So yeah, that, I, I, I think, is an alternative to the other two. Yeah, I agree. And do you, therefore, Jane, do you, is it important that kids have had that opportunity? I, th I think that's what I'm getting at. Is it, is it necessary for students to have that opportunity to try and f find out or derive or whatever terminology we use, the method or the solution for themselves before the teacher explains. Do you think that's an important part in the learning process? And if and if so, why just just out of interest? I think I don't think I would want to say it's more important than the the teacher teaching it because the teacher needs to decide which things they want to teach directly and which ones they want to link the learning. So yes. I think with the example on Pythagoras. Finding a shorter side and finding um, the hypotenuse are often taught discreetly, and never, never the terrain will meet, and people <laughs> then get will get, will then get confused, and they'll say things in lessons like, oh, "I know, you know, I know it's to do with the squares. I don't know whether to add or subtract because they've not realised how the the relationship works." So, um, but I think we're going to, I, I suspect, talk about mastery later on. Yes. I think one of the characteristics of mastery is looking at things and thinking about what's the same, what's different, I think is one of the one of the things. And I think it's been about good teaching forever and a day in mathematics. What's the same and what's different? That's about thinking mathematically. Because it's, it's that building that's, I think, really important. And I would love all children, all pupils, to get those opportunities to think what's the same, what's different, and therefore, what can I figure out? Yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm in full agreement there. And I, I wonder, just on a practical level, Jane, are you, um, and we're kind of venturing back into the territory of lesson observations here, but when you're envisaging students contemplating this, is this is it important that they're talking to each other? Is it is it fine for them almost to be doing kind of a bit of a silent contemplation? What what are we looking for here when they're doing this kind of reasoning? Well, I think at some stage they are going to need to talk to each other uh, and talk to the teacher. But again, we have to be careful about um, imposing a teaching style. Yes. So I think one of the things that, that in my experience pupils find difficult is articulating their mathematical thinking. Yes. And it does worry me that Sometimes when people have had very limited opportunities to articulate that thinking, um, that, that their thinking will still stay muddled because it's not until they try saying it that, that you realise that, that, that there's a sticking point or a misconception. And they need that 
sort of practice to rehearse their thinking. And it sort of links in with the teaching of, uh, of reasoning in, in one of the aims of the National Curriculum, of course, is mathematical reasoning. And I, I think teachers could do more out loud thinking themselves to model that sort of mathematical thinking. Because I think that, that probably is the most difficult thing to teach, and it's probably the most difficult thing to learn, is how to reason and how to articulate the mathematics. Because not only have you got to think it, but then you've actually got to put the language to it as well. So... Yeah, so they do need those opportunities to, to rehearse the sort of mathematical thinking. Yes, some children will be able to do it in their heads straight away, but others will need those opportunities. Well, this, I get, this is interesting, this, Jane, and I can't resist ask, asking you this at this stage, and it may take us down a, a road that we may not get out of for three or four hours, but I'm, I'm going to take, take the risk, <laughs> I'm gonna have to take the risk on this one. Um, you mentioned there reasoning, how reasoning is a, a difficult thing to, to teach. Um it, would you say that reasoning is, is is that a generic skill or is it domain specific in the sense that it is is it the same reasoning about why you add two fractions together? Is that the same as reasoning why we subtract to find the shorter side when we're doing Pythagoras or, or reasoning why the gradient of a straight line graph is the number in front of the M, uh, in front of the X and, and so on? Is is reasoning across mathematics generic and, and therefore is it something that can be taught or is it is it domain? specific is it is it limited to the to mm. the specific topic being taught because and the reason i asked jane is, is this is something i'm obsessed with with problem solving I, i'm i'm of the opinion that problem solving is very much domain specific and, and not a generic skill but i'm i'm wondering what your what your thoughts is specifically with regard to reasoning i, I don't think it's generic i don't think i don't think i could list um a set of characteristics that that represented reasoning um, I could have a stab at it, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I think it's it's so dependent on knowledge and understanding of the mathematics that is being reasoned about. I yes. don't think you can separate it from, as you would say, the domain. Um, so, but I think being able to reason about one bit of mathematics probably helps you when you come to reason about other bits of mathematics because you're learning to articulate thinking so in that sense i think um there might be some sort of generality across it but but similarly with the problem solving you were saying you think is is domain specific but there will be some there'll be some characteristics of problem solving that probably go across the domains but the actual mathematics that would be used to solve the problems would be domain specific, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, but again, we we may disagree a little bit on this. Well, what what would you consider to be characteristics of problem solving that would go across domains or across different different subjects in maths? Well, I think the the ability to be able to I mean a lot of math problems would be presented in words. Yes. Uh, or a mixture of words and diagrams, and. And the first thing you do when you read that is you have to spot the mathematics. You have to spot um, the, the mathematics that's sitting in there. So what is the mathematics? What, if you like, is the model? What's the mathematical model? What am I going to turn these words into in order to be able to work on it? And I think that that overarching initial step is probably common to every problem, math problem that you might do because what you're doing is you're looking for the mathematics 
but could I just again just just to be awkward here I would say that that as a first step is absolutely fine but to be able to actually carry out that step you've got to know the specific topic inside and out right because it's it's all it's all well and good saying what's this question asking or what's the maths but if you don't know the maths you can't spot what it's about so again I think I would argue that that is domain specific yeah I mean most of the time it would be there will be small elements about, uh, for example, um, doing an algebraic proof. So um, if you're going to be talking about reasoning and problem solving and proving, you can learn how to do certain proofs. Yes. Um, you know, so that aspect. And when is, when is, a, when is a proof appropriate? So, but I think in general, I think I would say, uh, <laughs> in general, I would say <laughs> problem solving and reasoning are domain specific. I think, and they are certainly, it is very difficult to solve a problem or to reason if you haven't got the mathematical knowledge and understanding. Yes. And that's why those two things are so important. Yeah, and I, I think that the reason I'm obsessed with this is, again, it's, it's all due, due to me reflecting on the mistakes I've made in the past. I, I used to think that you could kind of teach the two simultaneously. So I could teach kids to reason and problem solve and almost at the same time teach them to acquire the knowledge and the kind of core fundamental knowledge needed to solve the problem. But but now more and more, I'm convinced that the knowledge has to come first and then we'll develop the ability to problem solve within that specific domain. And I agree with you, Jane, that once you you've learned to solve certain problems and you've learned techniques such as uh, draw draw a picture represent draw a diagram mm-hmm. to represent a problem those are things that can transfer across but as i say only yeah. if that that core knowledge is in place and i used to think that you could teach problem solving as a skill and and now i'm not convinced that you can yeah i mean we used to in the days of coursework um, and attainment target one um there were there were certain criteria that you had to meet when you were doing investigations or solving problems in order to get certain marks. And I, along with I think a lot of teachers in the country in those days, used to have a, a grid up on the wall that talked about different levels. And yes. you know, at this stage you you could find the next term in a number pattern, and at this stage, you know, to get this mark, you needed to be able to generalise a term to term or a position to term. Um, you know, and then to get to the next mark, you had to be able to prove it or test your generalization. So, so there was a sort of a sequence of steps that you could encourage uh, pupils to go through. But um, but if you don't have the mathematical knowledge and mathematical understanding, then then you can't actually solve a whole range of problems. So, yeah, we've moved on. I think things have changed. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. Well, let me bring it back to the to the kind of lesson itself and, and lesson observations. But I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of kind of good lessons and good learning in general. And one thing that um, I often struggled with and I'm often asked about for advice and so on. And it's a really difficult one. And, and that's the issue of differentiation, Jane. So I wonder what, what would you say good features of differentiation are in a maths lesson? Oh right. Um, well, I think I think differentiation has changed, um, or people's understanding perhaps of it might be changing at the moment because of the advent of mastery and the new national curriculum. So, if I start with sort of the historical differentiation, um, in the past, I think what was considered to be high quality differentiation was to have 
different groups of children within the same class and different groups of students within the same class, perhaps doing different bits of mathematics. Um, and certainly in a primary classroom, there used to be three or four different groups of children doing different bits of mathematics. And in secondary classrooms, quite often, um, one group would be set extension work, and others would be set core, and others would be set support, or something like that. And some of that, sometimes those look like different bits of mathematics. And our previous national curricula have all been overlapping in terms of the content for different key stages. So it was quite acceptable once upon a time for pupils to follow different trajectories through the national curriculum because it seemed to be fine that the lower tamers wallowed in levels three, four and five for most of their, their school career, certainly their secondary career. Um, so, so this idea that different children did different bits of mathematics was, was prevalent. With um, the current national curriculum, it states in the front of the national curriculum, the expectation is that pupils will move through the curriculum together generally, I and mean, that's not an exact quote, but it's words to that effect. Um, and sometimes people have said to me, um, oh, that means that, you know, that you don't need to differentiate, you teach all the class together, you teach them the same stuff, and, um, and therefore you don't need to differentiate. And I don't think that's correct. So my, my view is that differentiation now is about how you enable all pupils in the class to engage with the concept or the technique that you are teaching that day. And that will be about um, supporting those who find it difficult, um, who have stumbling blocks in that particular topic, and making sure that those people who, who grasp it rapidly um, can go deeper and they're challenged to think harder. But it's not about accelerating some children on and allowing others to fall behind. There is this sense about keeping keeping the class together, but differentiation is about support and challenge or depth for pupils. But I think it's different to what it used to be. Yeah, and it's. I mean, would you agree that from the lessons that you've seen, that it's is differentiation a big kind of stumbling block for for teachers? Is it is it a key feature of almost a key kind of defining feature of whether a lesson or a learning episode goes well and and or doesn't go well? Is it that important, Jane? I th I think the the bit certainly the primary uh, teachers I've seen and uh, observed and talked with. It's the how do you challenge those who've got it quickly, who've got it um, securely, how do you go deeper? I think that's where teachers have more difficulty. Um, it is important that, that all pupils get sufficient sort of practice and sufficient mastery of, of the techniques, but enabling children or giving children and pupils the opportunities to think harder and deeper. I think that's the challenge, and that I think the reason it's difficult is because that is dependent on the teacher's subject knowledge and pedagogic skills to know, you know, how to deepen and challenge those pupils. Yeah, it's it's a flipping difficult one, and and also mm. as well judging where a 
a child's understandings at kind of in the heat of a moment of a lesson is is difficult yeah. as well because I, I've made the mistake again god I'm, I'm confessing to everything here but almost <laughs> kind of uh, almost kind of pre-differentiating before the lesson so thinking to myself right Josie always gets things right so I'm going to make sure I move her on to this Jen always struggles yeah. so I'm going to have this support worksheet but of course you've no way of knowing until you actually teach yeah. the lesson and and then, I mean, this goes to the whole debate over when, whether we can assess learning in the moment and so on. But even when you've got 30 kids in front of you, trying to make that call there and then whether yeah. Josie is ready to be challenged, whereas Jen does need support, is it's difficult, isn't it, Jane? I, I quite agree. But I think one of the things that um, is really important for teachers to be doing is, and, and I do think teachers have got much better at this over the years I've been doing this job, is circulating and picking up those clues that are, you know yes. from what pupils are doing in the classroom at the front of the class if you stay rooted at the front of the class and not many teachers do this now but they used to a couple of decades ago you know if, if you stay at the front of the class you don't you can't have a way of checking what they're doing and what they're thinking the teacher's job is to get inside the pupil's head in order to know what to do next in terms of the teaching and you can't just do that unless you're a mind reader you can't do that in front of the class so so circulating and knowing and that's why again it links into what we were talking about before with um with uh, choosing questions carefully so if you know that you've put in a couple of questions there that will expose common misconceptions or common difficulties then if you go around and you look to see how pupils are getting on with those questions you can see which pupils are having the difficulties you thought they might and then you can intervene and talk to them or ask a question. You know, so it's getting those clues as to as to what pupils are doing and thinking, picking up those clues and making use of that in the next steps of teaching is, is I think, part of the secret of success for teaching. Yes, not sure that's really question. No, there. that's that's spot on, that, Jane. No, no, I, I I fully agree with that. And I wonder, this is something kind of a bit, bit of a curveball, but it's something that when I when I met you a, a couple of months ago, you, you happened to mention, and I was fascinated by this. And that's you said that you'd seen some good examples of GCSE resits uh, being taught well. And the, the reason I want to ask you this is because I know uh, in my school it's something that I, I certainly don't feel that I've particularly taught well. It's it's something that often gets kind of is is lower priority GCSE resits. Um, often the kids are quite demotivated because they, they've experienced failure at, failure at GCSE, and it can be quite a difficult thing to to teach both for the teacher and, and for the students. So, uh, what have you seen that works well when it comes to to GCSE resits, Jane? Yeah, we, I've seen some good practice, um, and I've seen quite a lot of practice that isn't very good. Uh, and this, when we were talking about earlier on about equipping pupils for their futures, I think GCSE reset classes are probably the place to go and look at if you don't believe that some of the weaker teaching at GCSE is is, is not equipping pupils for their futures. Yes, because you know this this is why I think. There are lots of reasons why GCSE research classes are often not successful, but part of it has to be what happens prior to the sixth form or year yes. 12. Um, so what I have seen, I've seen a couple of bits of good practice that I'd like to take the opportunity to just talk about. Um, <clears throat> one was uh, actually the use of a, an external person who came in and worked with small groups of uh, students 
who were who were researching um, on very focused activities that were identified, or the, the topics, the groups of children, students were identified from assessment that they were perhaps struggling with, I don't know, solving equations, say. And then this person worked with a small group of these, these students on that particular topic. But there was a lot of discussion. And because the students were in a small group and because they got on with this person and could relate to this person, they suddenly opened up about what it was they couldn't do. And she could do some very intense teaching of that particular topic. And they, they then made progress in that particular area. And it was different students. Uh, for different sessions, but they seem to grow and it seemed to spill into their confidence on other topics. So even if they weren't always the ones going and working with this other person, they they did benefit from it, but it was very tightly sort of managed. So that was one thing I saw. And then I had the privilege of going and visiting um, a sixth form college uh, not quite a year ago, um, where they've sort of revamped their post-16s. So they've got huge numbers of students who are having to resit GCSE, as there's a lot of um, uh, general FE colleges as well. Um, and what one of the things that sort of struck me, apart from it being very extremely well organised and planned, um, was how ambitious it was. That it didn't, with the, with, it just didn't shy away from the algebra on the GCSE. It actually spent more time. The teaching spent more time on mastering the algebra. Um, than probably would be done at GCSE itself. They had different programs for those who resat in the November from those who took a year. They only had those who, in those days, who got a D, um, and I know we're on new money now. Um, they also put it in an option pool, so resit sat in an option pool so that it had the the clout, yes, that, um, you know that that it deserved. Um, uh, they all did higher tier uh, for the resets for the for the November resets. Um, they the homeworks that they were set were interesting as far as I remember. This is this is stretching my memory a bit now. It's nearly a year ago, but I think they ended up with um, they they chose with about ten core topics that they wanted to really get to grips with and quite a few of those were algebraic topics because they knew students would come weaker than that if they yes. not got their quiz under the sea and above um, and then the homework sheets went in pairs so they had about 10 questions on them varied questions not just all one topic but varied and week two was fundamentally the same as week one but slightly tweaked yes so so the students had sort of struggled with week one questions, all had to do it, and then all had got, there were laminated answers, model answers that they could work from. And then week two was, um, or it might have been week three, they might have staggered them by a, a couple of weeks, but there was another set that were very similar, and actually the success rate in that second set was so much higher than the first set. They haven't totally nailed it, but their pass rates much, much higher than, than the national averages. But they were very ambitious, so I was really interested in, in that, in, in what they were doing. That, that's interesting, that. And I think what's coming out for me from, from both those that you've, you've talked about there is 
it, and again, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Jane, but it is, it is a key feature of those GCSE resets that it needs to feel different for, for the students. It can't be seen as, right, we're doing maths again. You've already messed it up once. We're going to do it exactly the same way. You're probably going to mess it up again for, for, for the second <laughs> yeah. time. Do, do, does it need to feel different? Is that important? Um, that's, that's quite a difficult one, I think, because... The obvious answer is yes, it does need to feel different. And yet I'm just thinking about that sixth form college, how different did that feel? And I think that felt different by its ambition. Right. And that probably matches in with the ambition that is a characteristic of mastery in teaching, whether it's in primary or in secondary, this belief that you can do it, that all pupils can succeed. And I'm not sure that for GCSE resets that the teachers believe that all students can succeed and that certainly the pupils don't believe that they yes. can succeed. So I think it needs to be different in that respect. But um, there was, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, do you remember Study Plus from a few years back? I do. Yeah, I wasn't overly familiar, but yeah, the name certainly rings a bell. Because that, that had different approaches and was... Um, successful in its own way at the time um, you know so, so the, there are different approaches the sort of thing I think that doesn't work well um, there was some teaching I observed where a teacher had got um, several different sets of exercises I think as far as I remember they were all to do with uh, statistics and then the students could go around and they could go to different sort of stations and tackle different questions and what ended up, what I was observing there, and I stayed, I think, for the whole lesson, I think I stayed the whole hour, because I was intrigued to see how it sort of worked out, um, that the students ended up doing the questions at these different workstations, or like a circus it was, um, uh, and they ended up doing the questions that they could already do. <laughs> yes. Um, and so... What they weren't doing was, was the questions they couldn't do. And therefore, from my perspective, and this is a while back, you know, that the learning wasn't secure in that lesson, you know, and if that got replicated over time, it wouldn't be secure because it wasn't actually tackling, you know, where they really needed the input. It's, it's also like um, where teachers perhaps give a GCSE paper to a class, and this could be a key stage four class or a reset class, and in the lesson, the, the students start at the front of the paper, which is where, yeah. of course, the easy questions are. And actually, there's an argument for saying you should either start at the staples or you start at the back and work forwards. Um, or, better still, choose the questions that you want them to do in the lesson, because the valuable resource of the teacher is there in the lesson. So the ones that you think, or in the students think, that they need the most help with are the ones they should be doing in the lesson. And the ones that they can already do, or do by looking things up, they should be doing away from the lesson. So, again, this is this targeting of questions that, that can be done. 
That's fascinating, that, Jane. There's a, there's a couple of things that, that spring to mind there from what you've said. Um, Danny Quinn, who's head of maths at Michaela and has been a former guest on, on this podcast, she wrote a wonderful blog post about how extension material or the kind of interesting kind of bonus questions they should be a key focus of the lesson whereas more often than not teachers tend to kind of gloss over those and it's like right try that question for homework or whatever but as you say yeah. it's it's those questions that the kids need the most support with and, yeah. and leaving them to be on their own to struggle through those often isn't the best way so i think that's that's the first thing but the, the second thing i wanted to say was it really rung true that what you said about kids kind of practicing what they're good at and what they can already do and I'll never forget I used to do lessons with my year 11s and it would be a revision lesson where they could choose what they wanted to work on and I thought this was I thought this was a brilliant idea because of course they're all going to pick the topic that they struggle most with and it was going to be brilliantly differentiated and I could just walk walk around the class and help them but of course what, what happened was I remember Ashley was her name she was blitzing through doing adding fractions and I know for the fact that Ashley was absolutely useless at factorizing quadratic equations, couldn't do one to yeah. save her life, and yet she'd chosen to do adding fractions. And when I asked yeah. her, why are you working on that, Ashley? She said, oh, because I'm good at these. And like, it, it's, it's that thing, isn't it? That the students don't often, they don't often make the best choices. And sometimes yeah. as teachers, we need to carefully, it's all well giving them independence, but there are times when we need to use our kind of expertise and our knowledge yeah. of the students to think, right, I know you struggle on this, so I'm going to make sure you do this. But it's, it's difficult, isn't it, Jane? Because we yeah. want kids to be independent learners. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I liked about that uh, with the sixth form college was the laminated... Um, perfect solutions yes you know, that they could they, they could use and i and i know uh, way back when when i was a teacher i used to be also sixth form teaching in my final job before i became an hmi and i had folders of all the past papers for the exam boards that we used to use yes so and students were allowed to come in and welcomed to come into my classroom um any any time any lunch time and they could take get out the perfect folders and they could work through the 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 mark, uh, mark schemes and um, the the work solutions that I'd done and and they would they made really good use of that and it was one of the things that they could do and then what they would do then is ask me for help when they couldn't figure it out you know yes. but a lot of the time they could see once they could see the work solution they could see what was going wrong with their own and that I think helped their sort of independence learning really. Uh, I, I would advocate that sort of approach in any, any school. Yes, absolutely. And, I, I, well, God, there's so much I want to ask you, Jane, but just to kind of wrap up this, what kind of Ofsted are or aren't looking for in a lesson section, another one that, again, has been the bane of my life for, for many years now, is this this focus on engagement and almost kind of planning for engagement. And I think that, yeah. well, Rob Coase talks about this, how engagement's a poor proxy for learning because it's, it's easy yeah. to observe, well, apparently easy to observe engagement, but how do we know what students are engaged in and so on? So, I guess my question for you, Jane, is, is is engagement important? Can you observe it? And, and if so, what what are you looking for? Yeah, well, like, I guess sort of like anybody, you can see whether whether people are paying attention or not. But what you can't do is tell what they're thinking unless, yes. unless you talk to them or see what they're actually doing. Um, sometimes I think teachers make the mistake of... Um, choosing exercises and activities in order to engage and it's, it's a difficult one because if a class is you know especially you know if your class that's difficult to manage behavior wise yes it's very tempting 
to to choose something you think that will capture their interest because then you stand a chance of actually doing some teaching. Yes. Um, but the danger with that is that you're never going to teach them to persevere. So you, they've got to be able to to persevere of their own accord. I mean, that goes in with sort of independence and uh, the ability to be able to think for themselves. So they've got to be able to sort of have that those personal characteristics. So just giving something that's interesting or catches their attention on its own, I don't I don't think does the trick. But if a child is certainly not paying attention and is not thinking and is not doing anything, then then that I think is probably a no no. But um, it's quite difficult. So engagement on its own, it's very easy to write about when you're when you're observing a lesson, but. Uh, but it's really what what's going on inside their heads and how does that manifest itself is more important, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's a difficult one, this. Uh, and again, if I'm going to confess something else, I might as well just, just get it all out on, on this Thank you. Um, I think I used to be kind of scared of silence in, in, in the classroom, that I used to think silence was kind of a kind of the soundtrack to disengagement, and if you will. And when I, I love the sound of kids talking to each other and asking questions and if there was silence I tend to fill it myself with some stupid comment or yeah. something or, or some some redundant information but I think that again correct me if I'm wrong here Jane but I'm certainly the opinion that kids can be engaged but be absolutely silent they don't necessarily oh, need to yeah. be talking moving or anything like that but that's the yeah. difficult thing isn't it I think from a teacher and, and certainly if you're being observed because yeah. engagement to an observer uh, perhaps the untrained eye looks like kids moving around kids talking to each yeah. other and so on whereas yeah. sometimes the best learning can happen in those periods of silent contemplation if that makes yeah. sense yeah well i think i mean didn't you sort of when you're standing and you're talking to the class or you and you're watching and i like to have the sort of eye contact with the with people yes. when i was teaching because you could tell by people's expressions you knew when somebody's look, uh, expression was glazing over that you were losing them, or or they were being distracted by somebody next door, or something like that. So I think I think the the sort of watching the class is so important from the point of view of the teacher. And, and it, I was smiling when you were talking about the silence and being afraid of silence because I remember being inspected when I was head of maths, and we had a big inspection team in the school. And I had a, a low set, a year 11s, who were quite a handful. And the inspector came in to observe them. And I've never known them so quiet. <laughs> and instead of this usual buzz, you know, that you get in the classroom, you get, I got this completely quiet class of being cooperative, which was completely uncharacteristic for <laughs> them. And the minute she'd left, they sort of exploded. But, um, <laughs> but I think it happens quite often when you, when you're, as an observer when you're going to a lesson you change the dynamics of the classroom and I think quite often uh, pupils who are loyal to their school and loyal to their teacher will think that they they want to behave they want it to go well um, and part of behaving and wanting things to go well is they often become quieter and suddenly the chemistry that's in that's usually in the lesson isn't there you know so so it's, it's, it is a bit of an artificial situation that you get with observation. But I think if, if schools do a lot of it, then people will get used to it and be more sort of natural. But uh, 
yeah, I agree with you. To go back to your point, I think um, some really good learning and thinking can go on when the classroom's quiet. And giving, giving we've got a lot of evidence, isn't there, that giving pupils time to think before yes. anything says anything is, is really constructive as well. You know, so think for 30 seconds. Don't want anybody to say anything. Just think, you know. Yes. So, yeah, excellent. And I love it when teachers <laughs> take, do that sort of thing and when I'm observing. Fantastic. You know, That's absolutely superb and the final thing on on this uh, on this bit jane is again i'm fascinated by this because whenever i've been observed as part of ofsted inspections and and indeed whenever i kind of i'm lucky enough to observe a colleague myself is that often the inspector or the observer will, will speak to students um, about well i don't know what about mathematics or, or whatever and that's that's what i guess i'm interested in is whenever you as an inspector go around the class and, and speak to students what what kind of things are you asking and, and what are you hoping they're going to say back to you as a sign of learning oh right um well yeah i do i do try and talk to as many students as i can when i'm observing but obviously i don't want to be talking while the teacher's talking you know so there are sort of protocols you have to sort of follow um if uh, i tend to go around the class i don't tend to stay rooted you know to a seat or whatever um so one of the things i will always do is if a, if a pupil put a hand up and the teacher's busy with somebody else then i will say you know are you, are you stuck can i help you know what's the problem and and get into then them then talking about what it is that they're they're stuck with because that gives me insight into how well they're learning and the sorts of questions i would ask are exactly the same sort of questions i would ask if i was teaching them so i would sort of say well explain you know that one that you did with the teacher that says just explain that to me tell me how that worked so i can see if they can replicate the reasoning that's gone on with a particular method does that make sense yes um and then then i'll say well why is it such and such and what is and so what's the stumbling block what's the same what's different you know how about you know why did you do this why did, why did you do that sort of thing so i ask them about their immediate learning um if somebody's finished uh, and the teacher's not realized they finished i will often take the opportunity to have a quick look in their book and i will go back in their book to see what else and i'll say well you know which topics have you found easy or difficult or how does this you know, I can see this is written here. How does that connect with what we're doing today? Or have you solved any problems in this particular topic that you did last week? Or, you know, I'll use those sorts of questions in the classroom. Different to the sort of questions perhaps I would ask if I was talking with a group of pupils away from the classroom. But, um, but in the classroom, it would be usually what I will ask them about is about the current learning. And then I'll try and link it back into other learning, earlier learning if I can. Got it. Okay, Jane, well, what I thought we'd do next is we'd, we'd tackle some Ofsted myths. And I, I'm picturing this as almost some kind of primetime TV show format that's going to be snapped up here very, very quickly for, for millions of pounds. Because well, the way we're going to run this is I'm going to ask you a question. And basically, I either just want a yes or a no from you. And feel free to expand if you, if you need be. But these are some of the kind of common questions I get asked about. Do Ofsted want this? Do Ofsted need to see this? And so on. So I thought you were just the person to, to clear this up for us. So the first one is this. Is there a time limit on how much teacher talk there should be in any lesson? No. <laughs> Fantastic. Perfect. Uh, what about, and I think you, you've already answered this, but just, just to get it clear, is there a preferred teaching style? No, no. Ofsted has no preference to particular teaching styles in mathematics. Perfect. Or any other subject. 
Perfect. Now, this, this one may be a bit more uh, interesting. I don't know. But do the maths problems that students encounter in lessons need to be set in real life context? Oh, no. No, I'm so glad you've asked me that one. Because a lot of teachers, especially primary teachers, um, when they're talking to me, say, you know, that problems have to be real life problems. And then you get these what I call pseudo problems. <laughs> which are not really real life. They're very, very artificial. Um, so there was an example I think I used at the conference that you were at. I think it was something like 834 bulbs had got to be planted in um, six flower beds by a gardener. And uh, people had to work out how many bulbs per flower bed. And completely unrealistic yes. problem. I mean, to start off with, did the gardener count the 834 <laughs> bulbs in the place? And I think not. And actually, in practice, if you had got that, you'd just make six roughly equal heaps and plant them. Um, so that, for me, is a, is a pseudo-problem. It's sort of very artificial. And there are all sorts of wonderful problems and puzzles that are mathematical problems and puzzles that, that pupils could tackle. They don't have to be set in real-life contexts. Yes, we want people to be able to use mathematics in their everyday lives, but let's make them sort of realistic when they need to be realistic and use other math problems the rest of the time. So thank you for asking me that one. <laughs> no, and thank you for answering, Jane, because that's, that's exactly what I think as well. That's, that's perfect. That. Well, what about the next one? Do you need to see group work? No, that would be um, to suggest that we had a particular preference for organising classroom so no we don't need to see group work fantastic what about students talking to each other yeah we, we talked a bit about this one earlier on didn't we with yes. um, reasoning i think at some stage pupils will need to have the opportunities to articulate their their thinking but as a, as a recipe for a lesson an essential ingredient every lesson doesn't have to be that students talk to each other and um, they might be talking to the teacher but um, it would be unusual I think to go into a classroom where no student talk to any other student at all um, apart from in a test uh, every lesson so it's it's about what happens in one lesson may just be part of a big picture of all sorts of other lessons so no they don't have to I think this is what behind this is um, do we need to see lots of student pair talking going on? Yes. And again, that would be a particular style of organising the teaching and the left, the group. And so, no, we don't. Fantastic. And you, you mentioned early on, Jane, I think, that, that good textbooks, and you were very careful to say good textbooks are, are absolutely fine. Um, wh what about worksheets? Uh, are they OK to, to use? Some worksheets are wonderful and some worksheets are awful and then there's everything in between. Um, so, yes, it's how they're used, you know. So, along with worksheets along with textbooks, you could have fantastic textbooks used badly and you could have poor textbooks used um, very imaginatively well. So, worksheets are okay, but they need to be good quality. It's, it's the quality and the, the, the use of the, the worksheets that's important. Fantastic. Um, what, what, what about this one? I get this a lot. Uh, do lesson objectives need to be displayed um, and or recorded in books? Oh, right. Okay. Um, I actually did a joint observation with a 
senior leader once when I was on an inspection, and that senior leader downgraded it quite a while ago. It was when we used to grade teaching individual lessons. Uh, the teacher uh, downgraded, sorry, the leader downgraded the teacher for not having displayed oh. the <laughs> learning objectives for that lesson. And actually, the teacher had deliberately not displayed them because the teacher wanted the pupils to tell him at the end of the lesson what they had learned. Yes. And I'm actually fine with that. So no, Ofsted does not need lesson objectives to be displayed or recorded in books. Fantastic. Um, what about this? Is there any, and I'm, I'm already guessing the answer, I think I'm getting into the way of Ofsted thinking here, Jane. Um, do, do classrooms need to look like anything in terms of a seating arrangement? Are rows okay, single desks, groups of desks? Do you, is there a preference there? Uh, Ofsted has no preferences for how, how teachers choose to arrange their classrooms. What would be, what would be interested in is, is whether an arrangement, um, a particular arrangement, adversely affected some children. So I was uh, in a classroom once where it was sort of like an L shape and some children were tucked around the corner and actually couldn't see the teacher. Yes. So, so that was a little bit of a concern, but, um, but in general, um, no, it's up to the teachers and the schools to decide how to arrange the seating. Got it. Fantastic. And the, the final question from this uh, fun Ofsted myths game show I've invented here. <laughs> this, and this, this could be a controversial one. I've purposely ended on this one, Jane. And I don't think you're going to like this one, but I, I'm more than happy to, to argue with this is that I'm on a bit of a mission here to, to ban uh, classroom displays in maths lessons and my, my logic and I'm even going as far as number lines or anything with kind of a definitions of mean median mode anything kids work whatever it is I want it out there because um, I think it can distract students and it can stop them thinking about the key content um, of the lesson and even potentially useful things like number lines, negative numbers, all that kind of stuff can make students overly reliant on them and, and therefore almost use them as a crutch to learning instead of actually learning and remembering themselves. So I want them all gone, but I'm wondering, would Ofsted be happy to walk into a maths classroom that essentially the walls were blank? Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's quite, you've got, um, I think, some of the rules around some of the PFI builds were that, that things couldn't be stuck to walls, they could only be stuck onto display boards. So some classrooms we go into um, don't have very large displays. And then, of course, um, there are rules around time spent for doing this, and sometimes TAs do displays. Um, so it comes down to sort of the decisions made by the school again. I think, I don't think I've ever been into a school where the walls are completely blank. <laughs> what, I have, what I have seen, though, um, is where I've gone in and there's been a display and it looks very faded. Yes. And then me being me, I look at the name of the child whose work is displayed <laughs> and it will say year nine, set three or something. And I'll go and I'll look at the register and they're in year 11. So I know <laughs> yeah. that's been up for two years. Um, equally, I'm suspicious of things that look extremely new. I think it's interesting what you're saying about a crutch. Yes. Um, Nobody else agrees with me on this, Jane, by the way. It's just, just me at the moment, but I'm, I'm interested in your right. take. Okay. Well, I, I would... I disagree from the point of view of primary, certainly. I think um, displays, number lines... Visual images are really important. 
um, for children to see and to see them all the time. So I certainly wouldn't want to uh, restrict displays, classroom displays and working walls in primary. I have seen teachers cover up aspects of displays yes. when, they're, when they're teaching. Um, so, or if they've got a test or something going on and they don't want the students to refer to them. I think it depends on the nature of the display. So I wouldn't like to see, or I would question, the use of a display that said, this is how you do Pythagoras, step one, step two, step three. You know, I wouldn't, that sort of display, I think, would be a crutch. But a display of um, intriguing maths problems or um, some historical figures in maths or working walls on what we're currently working on, I, I would be perfectly happy with. But if it was um, if it was different in an individual school, I would just be interested to know why the school had chosen or why the teacher had chosen to do things or not do things in certain ways, and I would listen to what they got to say about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that I love like working walls I like and I really like um, you see in some schools where you get those kind of pens that you can write on essentially on walls and rub off and you can write yeah. them on windows and rub off. And I love that because I, I love the fact that therefore the display is very current. It's about what's going on in yeah. that lesson. It's directly relevant and so on. Yeah. Um, I'm not again, you're not going to like this, but I'm not a fan of historical figures uh, at all, because whilst it's. Whilst it's really kind of interesting, and by the way, I'd have these on mass corridors, left, right, and centre. Mm -hmm. I want them around the school. But in the lesson, yeah. say, say I'm teaching Pythagoras, I don't want a student's mind want, thinking about Gauss or Fermat or something like that. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I need them concentrated yeah. on, on everything I'm saying. And like the best displays are eye-catching and divert yeah. attention, and I, and I don't want that. So I, I, guess, I guess that's my point. I want what students their limited attention i want it focused on the important thing for that lesson and my fear with a lot of displays is by their very nature they detract yes. attention if, if that makes sense yeah i think most of the students i see take no notice whatsoever of the displays that are up i haven't seen a lot of students being distracted yeah, I guess um, well, they're there. But it's really people. interesting, really interesting. I shall look very hard. And not something I had thought too deeply about. But I think I think you might have a different. I think you might have a different situation in a primary. Yes, and yeah, and I've, I'm vastly realising that, that my uh, my experience of primary school is very limited, and I don't really know what I'm talking about there there at all. But I think certainly for for secondary, cause an interesting one. God, I, I could talk for hours on this. This will be the last thing I say. I promise. Is is prime numbers is a classic because you often see that in yeah. school, the display of all the prime numbers, and I used to think, well, that's brilliant. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not, I'm more and more convinced the more reading I do that unless students are tested on retrieval, unless they're compelled to retrieve knowledge from long term memory, I don't yeah. think it, I don't think it gets retained. And therefore, if students are working on whether it's prime factorization or whatever it may be, and they know they can glance up and see that 17 is a prime number, whereas 27 isn't. I don't think yeah. that that sticks in their head. So I'd much rather see, whilst I completely take your point that kids need to be exposed to maths all the time, I think I'd rather it be in kind of like a knowledge organiser or something that they know yeah. they can access if they need, but I want them to have a go at retrieving it themselves first, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, it's really, really interesting. I, as I say, it's not something I had thought too much about, so I shall think more about it. <laughs> <in the future. laughs> 
but yeah, I, I think also some some displays are there about celebration, aren't they? Yes. They're about celebration of students' work. Um, and sometimes I've seen posters where students are summarising or illustrating perhaps the last topic they were working on and that sort of thing. So there is definitely a sort of a celebratory sort of aspect. Um, but but it's but it's interesting. I shall look with the renewed eyes next time I'm in the next. Fantastic. But so so the poor teacher who's left I'm in next. <laughs> as i say it's not making me popular with, with senior management but yeah never mind well we'll move on from that jane to something else that that i want to talk about and now this, this is something i'm particularly poor at and that that's marking my, my books aren't particularly great I, i'll be honest and if, if you ever come to observe me jane don't look at my books will, will be my advice and but i i see i see um inspectors more and more these days focusing on books and you you spoke about it yourself that when you're speaking to students if you have an opportunity to flick through a, a book um you'll definitely take it so i guess my first question is when you do look through students books what what are you looking for jane okay i i think perhaps um the way i do work scrutiny might not be the same as all other inspectors because i think we we do things uh, in the ways that we find work so if i'm doing uh, a scrutiny of mathematics books sometimes i'll actually do that scrutiny with a with a math subject leader. I find that the most yes. useful thing. Um, the reason, if I just take one step back, the reason there's so much emphasis, I think, in inspection on work scrutiny is because the judgments on teaching, learning, and assessment, that one big judgment for the whole school, takes a, account of all aspects of teaching and learning, as much evidence as we can get. I'm sitting here waving my arms around in this sort of large sort of round shape, <laughs> um, which is obviously very useful for this. Sure. Um, you know, so, so it's not just what we see in lessons, it's about talking to the pupils, about looking at their work, about looking at curriculum documents, looking at assessment materials. So we're trying to gather together. So so that's why there's the emphasis on, on books. And we know that not everything that happens in lessons is in the books. So that's something I just want to state sort of clearly. In terms of when I'm doing a work scrutiny in mathematics, preferably with a subject leader, one of the things I will do is, is I will try and get hold of the scheme of work for that a, a period of time, in all, or sort of medium-term planning. So what is it that the pupils are supposed to have been learning in this, in this period of time? Um, and then what about the quality of the learning that's going on in those books? So if they are doing Pythagoras' theorem, things we've used that quite a lot, um, actually, do they just do all the hypotenuse calculations on one day and all the uh, shorter sides on the next day and then nothing else? Um, or actually, are they sort of linked up together? So I'll be looking to see what the scheme says and then what actually happens in the books in order to get a sense of um, depth as well as the, the progression. Um, I'd be looking to see if, if they do any problem solving. Or are they just doing these, here's the triangle, work out the missing side, you know, the length of the side. Um, so that's what I would be looking for. Is, is, is I'm also looking for the, for the teaching approach. So is it recipe teaching or can I see that, you know, there's some more care being taken over developing the, the steps, the, the whys as well as the hows. If I'm, if I'm doing, when we're, when we're inspecting whole schools, of course, we have to look at more than one subject. So... Um, 
I also have in my sort of inspections or toolkit things like um, the sort of expected sort of standards in, in key stage two, key stage one, um, uh, uh, GCSE. If I know I'm going to be looking at particular subjects, I might have criteria there, so I have an idea of how to pitch it for other subjects. I know my own subject much more fluently than other subjects. Um, so I, I try to link it to the curriculum as well. If I'm confident that the scheme of work is giving good guidance and good depth, then as long as the books match that, then I can be more confident. That's why I try to bring in the curriculum dimension. Got it. Fantastic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I guess the the natural follow up from that, Jane, and this is something that will be close to any teacher who's listening, um, is this issue of, of marking and, and feedback. And I, I just wonder first, what, for, for you as as representing Ofsted, what in, in mathematics in, in particular, what, what does good marking and feedback within those books that you're looking at, what, what does that look like, Jane? That's quite a difficult question for me to answer, Craig, because um, Austin is very clear at the moment we're not talking about what good practices because there's been so much misuse, um, so many myths around what Austin thinks is good marking. It's very difficult to even go near the topic. Yes. However, <laughs> what I'm still going to stick my neck out and say some things. So first of all, the NCGM, National Centre of Excellence in Teaching Mathematics, and I'm sure we can provide the link, have published guidelines on marking and feedback for primary and for secondary mathematics. And those are available on their website. And both of those documents um, went through Ofsted, so they came to us to have a look at. And there's nothing in those documents that is in conflict with our inspection handbook. So if people were to read those, then they can draw their own conclusions from those. And and if you follow any of the guidance there, you won't be in conflict with what we do. In terms of what Ofsted looks at on inspections to do with marking, um, we look at the school's policy to see what the school is saying should be happening in terms of marking. And then we look to see whether the teachers are following that policy consistently and what difference that is making to the learning. So if a school inflicts a really heavy-duty, time-consuming system on its teachers, we will still check to see that those teachers are doing that yes. time-consuming marking policy. It's not often saying they've got to do the, that, but it's got to be time-consuming. It's the school's decision, you know, about what the marking must look like. Um, for me, the, the, the bottom line is why do we mark? We mark books to find out how well pupils are learning, what it is we have most recently taught them. So if it's homework, what have they managed to do? What are the misconceptions? And the purpose of it is to know what to do next in terms of the teaching or support for individual or small groups of students. So it's about informing teaching. So, so the marking should get underneath how good the learning is in order to form the next steps in teaching. It, it shouldn't be... I mean, all schools are charged with, with taking care of a workload. So a school that's actually inflicting a really heavy-duty, heavy, time-consuming marking policy on its teachers, actually, there's a question mark over workload issues. 
Um, poor examples of marking are what we used to call kick and flick at school, which yes. is where a teacher places a tick at the bottom of each page but doesn't actually look at anything <laughs> yeah. um, in any detail. That, that is not worth doing. Um, helping especially older pupils to know how to mark their own. We talked earlier on about you know use of model answers and things like that. That's got a, a role to play. I think, for sort of later on. If you've chosen questions carefully and set perhaps two or three questions rather than 20, you know, if you know what mistakes people are going to make, that's what you need to be looking for as a teacher. So if you've given the opportunity for the misconceptions to be exposed, then yes, you would want to mark that bit of work. I think that's important. But if it's um, just a bit of practice on something and people can mark it themselves, then, then that's also great, that's fine. But what, if people mark their own work, they should know what to do if they've got it wrong. You know, what, what, how do they go about help, finding help if they've got something wrong? Oh, sorry, that's a bit of a wandering. No, it's there. no, it's it's no, and I appreciate you you answering it, Jane. I wonder if I could just ask a couple of follow ups on that. Um, yeah. is it an issue if you look through books and a piece of work isn't marked? Uh, is it important that whether it's marked by the teacher, the student themselves, or a fellow student, um, is is it important that all work is marked in maths? I don't think it's possible to mark all work. I, I really don't think it's possible. So it wouldn't be even, and again, as I say, I'm talking about here, like a, a kid marking their own work or something like that. It, it it wouldn't be a major issue if you came across a couple of pages of work that had no indication of peer assessment, self-assessment or, or teacher assessment. No, no. Oh, that's I, interesting. I, mean, I, have, I would be concerned when I've seen books that haven't been marked for three months. <laughs> yeah, sure. Months. I mean, seriously, that sometimes, you know, but there are some schools that don't do any marking whatsoever. Yes. Um, you know, this, this moves towards that as well. Um, I and when I when I flick through, I might focus down. What I don't tend to do is just flick through the whole book. I will I will flick through a book, but then I will look in depth at one or two pages. Yes. And I will look. I will scan down, and it will be a topic. I don't know. Perhaps it's to do measuring angles. So I know measuring angles using protractors say that the most one of the most common mistakes is that pupils will look on the wrong scale. So I'll have yes. a quick look, and if it's and if a, if a teacher's marked 40 degrees as right and it should be 140, then that I think should have been picked up because that is a common mistake. Um, so so that's the sort of thing I will look for um, in terms of looking to see the quality of of the marking. But it's really its impact. But if if stuff that's wrong is marked right then that won't help the pupil. Yes. So that will have an impact on, on learning. You see you see some marking that teachers must have spent forever and a day on. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it's just ridiculous how much time sometimes teachers are having to spend. And I think it just takes from other things then. Um, yeah. Oh. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, related to that, and this will be the last question I ask about books and marking, but I, I know in many schools and, and our schools, an example of this, there's a policy of doing, some people call it mad time or dirt time or, or, or kind of reflection time. And it and yeah. it's that, that period of a lesson where normally it's the first 10 or 15 minutes of a lesson where kids get the books handed back to them. They've completed homework the week before, the night before, wherever the teachers marked it. And then they've got to reflect on that homework and perhaps do some corrections or some 
follow-up work. I just wonder if you'd seen anything, any effective practices with regard to that in particular, with, with regard to students following through and responding to, to marking and feedback in, of homework. Okay, um, several things. First of all, I think on our misbusting documents that are on the Ofsted website, uh, it states that Ofsted does not expect sort of triple marking, you know, when yes. you get this dialogue. But the school's policy says that teachers need to do next steps or something like that, and that children and pupils need to follow up on those, then we would be checking to see if that happens. Now, um, some of the things that seem to be the most efficient way of doing that, if that's what's chosen, I've seen in primary schools where children go into the, the class at the beginning of the day and they automatically turn to their their books and they, at those first few minutes before the teacher's taking the register and done dinners and that sort of thing, um, they'll be using that sort of time to to look at their work um, and to respond to the teachers. So an example I saw in our, in our secondary school was a teacher who, after she'd marked the classes maths homework, uh, devised three questions which she put on a little sheet. And uh, so as I remember, the first one, I think, was for those who'd made a sort of a common mistake that she'd supported them with, just to make sure that they got the hand of it and weren't continuing with that mistake. Um, and then there was a second question and a, and a third question. It was particularly challenging. And the second one, I think, was a bit of a problem. So the third one was for those who found it quite straightforward. And then the students knew when they sort of first came into the lesson that the, the when it said Q1, Q2 or Q3 on their books, that's the one that they had to do. But she devised it on the back of what they'd already um, shown that they could or couldn't do in the homework. So that was an interesting approach. And when I, when I talked to those students um, about the system we were using, they didn't really like it. So much more they said they wanted to talk to. So they kept all these little sheets because they found them very useful for revision. Even if they had only done one at the time, they, they made use of those for revision as well. So I thought that was interesting. But, it, but what I liked about it was that it was based on what they had done in, in, that, um, in that particular homework. But I just worry about the amount of time teachers spend marking and writing next steps and then with the dialogue. So it has to have a sort of, has to reap a reward, I think. Yeah, and I, I always mm. go back to, to well, I, I always revert to whatever Dylan Williams says about anything, really, because he, he speaks a lot of sense. But I, I just like when he said that the, the only good feedback is that which makes students think. And I always kind of have that as my mantra. Yeah. If, if what I'm doing doesn't cause students to think and think hard and, and improve their learning, then I'm literally wasting my time. And, and, and sometimes less is more. And I've, I've spent many a Sunday writing really detailed feedback, structured follow-up follow questions and so on. And yeah. almost the irony is the better the feedback and the more detailed and structured and scaffolded the follow-up questions, the less the kid has to, has, has to actually do themselves when they get it back because you're essentially yes. presenting the full answer for them so i'm certainly trying to do less is more and i think that that way you described there from that teacher is 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 excellent have three really well thought out questions that you can direct kids to do and, and base those questions on the work that you've seen marked i think yeah i think that's excellent jane yeah you know and but the most important thing is that the marking should inform yes what you're going to do next in terms of teaching the other thing that sometimes people ask about is, is about verbal feedback 
and um, and Ofsted doesn't expect any recording of verbal feedback. I know some schools have sort of VB or some other symbol written, you know, where they've given it. And sometimes in the early years, you know, people again have asked, you know, what, what should we, what should we be, be, be recording? You know, what does Ofsted expect us to record? And my answer would be that you, you should only record things that are useful to you um, as teacher or you think will be useful for the pupil, or you think will be useful perhaps for discussing with parents. So if you've got a reason for recording it, then record um, something to do with the verbal feedback. Otherwise, it should just be verbal feedback. Um, you know, it, so don't, don't make it more onerous than it has to be. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it just becomes... A box ticking is, is the wrong phrase. It's a bit of a cliche to use, but it's more like almost teachers feel a need to have an abundance of evidence that everything that they've done needs to be recorded and so on. And like yeah. you say, it becomes unsustainable. You, you may say something really useful to a child in the moment and they may it may really just kind of ring a bell for them and make them understand something that they've not understood before. But then you you don't need to then go and write that down and let's record it and all and all that kind of stuff. But where does that kind of pressure come from if if it's not Ofsted what do you think it is Jane because we are in a bit of a workload crisis in mathematics and and, and marking yeah. is a massive part of that well, where do you get the feeling that the pressure's coming from to record and to do so much feedback and all this is it is it just a misunderstanding from senior leadership of the Ofsted guidelines do you think or is, or is it something else I think it's rooted in sort of history from a decade or so ago possibly um i think there probably several dimensions one i think might be about schools feeling they need to have stuff to show inspectors so they can prove yes. you know that this is happening or that is happening so there's this idea of evidence got to have evidence got to have evidence so i think there's a pressure that comes from there and i think the shift towards philosophy towards professional dialogue about things can help that I think in the past, um, sometimes Ofsted reports have praised uh, particular examples of marking where there's been a dialogue, perhaps. You know, so the teacher's written something or written next steps and then the pupils have responded and then the teacher's checked the pupils' response. And I think perhaps some years ago, that sort of thing might have been praised as being examples of good practice. And then that gets picked up as being this is what Ofsted wants and therefore we must do it. And then it becomes an industry, you know, that's self-sustaining. And I think that's, I think that, so I think historically perhaps that's happened. I think uh, another factor is that outstanding schools generally aren't part of routine inspection. They can, any school can be inspected because the chief inspector has that right but they are exempt from general inspection. And sometimes these schools haven't been inspected for seven, eight, whatever years. And so therefore their experience of Ofsted, I think, goes back to a former life. I think Ofsted's changed quite a lot over the last few years. So sometimes I think the memories of people who are working in those schools or they are supporting schools um, and their training teachers, I think sometimes they're not as up-to-date with what we are saying currently, um, as they might be. So I think there are several sort of factors, but but it definitely has got a life of its own, I think. Um, But I would, you know, 
what I would say to, to teachers and subject leaders is read the misbesting information. You know, if you've been to a conference and I've said things, quote me, you know, uh, quote Ofsted, quote what's there, you know, stand up for yourself and say, this is actually what Ofsted says, what you're expecting is not the same as that. So, you know, have those discussions. Fantastic. Um, because, you know, I, I, that's, that's what I would do, yeah. <laughs> Superb. No, have thank... courage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, th- thanks for talking about that, Jane. That, that's incredibly useful, that. And I, I want to turn now to just a, just a couple of wider issues for, from Ofsted. And the first is this. I just wonder, just in your own personal opinion or, or Ofsted's opinion, however you want to interpret it, are, are you pleased that you no longer have to give judgments on individual lessons? Yes, overall, I'm, I've been doing this job so long that um, when I first started, it was a seven-point scale for <laughs> studying teaching and lessons, uh, from excellent down to very poor, not just poor, but very poor. <laughs> um, and we used to judge teaching in the usually half lessons that we observed, um, but it was strictly about that half lesson. It wasn't about teaching over time at all. Yes. And then then we moved to teach. So I, I thought we could do that because you could also see that that wasn't a typical, you know, it was something that hadn't worked or it's something that worked really well. And we could do that. But then we shifted towards the judgment that was made in a lesson had to reflect the teaching over time. And that, that is much more problematic. So from that point of view, I'm very pleased we no longer have to do that because trying to assess in half an hour what the teaching over time for that teacher looked like was a much more demanding task and I think the idea that we're now gathering a wider range of evidence that informs the whole judgment on teaching learning and assessment I think is a really good move and a much more sensible move um, so so yes overall I'm very pleased that we no longer give judgment on individual lessons fantastic and this is a question i've been i've been dying to ask you throughout the whole interview jane and i've I've had to hold myself back because there's been many things you've said that have kind of lent itself to this question but i've I've saved it up for now i wonder what your view is jane are maths lessons perceived differently if they're observed by a math specialist like yourself versus a non-specialist and the reason i've been dying to ask you this at numerous times is some of the things you've been talking about are really nuanced things that you observe like and it really sprung to mind whenever you were talking about the conversation you'd have with a student in the lesson about how you would be looking yourself for, for misconceptions throughout the book mm. and how you would be looking to connect learning together and i just know that if i watched a history lesson or a french lesson i wouldn't have a flipping clue what to do there and i'm biased towards maths but i think maths is an incredibly complex subject and, and the pedagogy behind it and the connections and the misconceptions are, are, are very subtle sometimes so yeah i mean let, let me just put it that way do you think that that lessons are perceived differently depending whether a, a, a specialist and specifically a math specialist in, in this case um, observes them that's a really interesting question um and a dangerous one I think. <laughs> yes of course um but uh yeah i don't know that they're Perceived. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the word I would choose to use. Um, perceived differently. I, I think inspectors are good at picking up generic features of teaching across subjects. Um, so that you know, you said you, you wouldn't have a clue if you observed a history lesson. Well, actually, most inspectors um, 
have experience of observing, teaching and learning across a range of subjects. And over time, you as an inspector become more skilled at the range of subjects than um, than somebody who perhaps has never done it before. So I think that inspectors, I'm confident that they are, are good at picking up the generic features. Um, I think it is very difficult for a non-specialist, a non-mathematician, to understand the subtleties of um, observing mathematics. There's, there's no doubt about that, I think. But we do train our inspectors, um, and we've got more training coming up. So some of the most important things about, for example, teaching for understanding versus just teaching for proficiency, the fact that we need both, the characteristics of mastery, uh, problem solving, um, good choice of exercises. So if numbers 2 to 10 in an exercise can be done exactly the same way as number 1, that's not a good exercise. That doesn't give you the variation that you would want to see. So there are certain things that even non-specialists, I don't mean even, but <laughs> that non-specialists can see even if they are not a specialist mathematician. So, yes, so there are things that are obvious. And I think this this is something that, um, for example, for sub senior leaders in schools won't all be mathematicians, but they'll be observing math lessons. So they're in the same boat, really, as, as inspectors. So they ought to know what are the important things in teaching and learning mathematics, and are those things happening in, in the lessons? over time you, it might not happen every lesson but it might happen you know over time you see uh, that makes sense. Uh, it makes perfect sense um i'm going to disagree a, a tiny bit and this i wouldn't have made this point a year ago but this is something i'm, I'm a little obsessed with now that say for example you, you talked about then and we, we've talked many a time on this interview jane about the importance of examples and a, a really careful selection yeah. of, of practice questions now let, yeah. let's take for example um something like f working out fractions of an amount now in the past yeah. i would have been relatively careless with my choice of questions and i would have given kids 10 questions from a worksheet or tes or wherever where they've got to do two-thirds mm. of 40 three-fifths of 25 whatever it is we'll work, work yeah. our way through those 10 questions fine yeah. But now what I would do, I would still choose 10 questions, but I would carefully vary them. So the first one may be something like three-fifths of 25, and question two will be three-fifths of 250. So I would hold everything the same, but change one thing from example one yeah. to question two. And I'm obsessed with John Mason and Anne Watson's work on the importance of kids forming expectations about what the answer is going to be and having those expectations realized or not realized. And kids can only form those expectations if question one's related to question two, if question who's related yeah. to question three and so on now the, the my point that i'm trying to make here is that to the untrained eye those 10 questions that i used to do compared to the 10 questions i do now look very similar they're still there's no context there's no real life there's no apparent problem solving they're all 10 questions on working out the fractions of yeah. an amount but the 10 that are varied carefully are really really yeah. important for developing that conceptual understanding and i don't think a non-math specialist would pick up on that and that that whereas i think yeah. you would pick up on it and i think that's my fear that it's those subtleties and I think that's where we almost be, 
go into this kind of box ticking exercise where, right, if I'm non-math specialist observing this, I better do an in-context problem. I better do something. Mm-hmm. I better put the le- yeah. lesson objective because I've got to make it really explicit what I'm doing here, which is often to the detriment of the learning. Whereas those 10 questions that yeah. look very boring are actually really powerful for the learning. But I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. And you're, you're right. Um, that the example you use is three fifths of 25 and then three fifths of 250. So the, the linkaging between those questions to give you that sort of procedural variation yes. is, is really important. And we have, as I said, we have got more training coming up for inspectors and characteristics of mastery and teaching for mastery, one of those things. But I can't guarantee that inspectors would know would be able to recognise the difference between three fifths of twenty five followed by three fifths of two hundred and fifty and and similarly linked questions and be able to know that that is um, more carefully constructed than three fifths of twenty five followed by two thirds of eighteen followed by a quarter of something else. Yes. You know, so so that it is quite subtle. But an inspector doesn't make judgments on the individual lesson, and the inspector should be talking to that teacher after the lesson. And there are opportunities for subject leaders and senior leaders and teachers just to be able to explain what it, what is teaching and learning mathematics likely to look like in our school. And I've encouraged and continue to encourage uh, schools to have a, a short, not just talk to them, Talking inspectors, by all means, also have a, a short description about what it might look like. So, what might an exercise look like? And you know, talk to the inspector. So, if you were observed by a non-specialist and you had constructed it, and they said they look all the same, you say, actually, you know, um, I disagree because the link between this one and this one is this, and then the link between this one and this one, and this is what I want to get out of it. So, there's that professional dialogue element as well. Um, and it's really important that the that teachers and leaders make the most of that professional dialogue so that it's not in t- it's not just um, an isolated thing that the inspector does and makes a judgment of and goes away. And is that, does that make Jane, sense? It does, Jane. And I wonder, and this is it's actually an Ofsted myth that I forgot to ask you about, but now's a perfect time. Is that where a lesson plan would come into play? Because a lesson plan's an opportunity to make that explicit, right? Like I, I could explain in a couple of sentences what I'm trying to do with those 10 questions in a way that hopefully a non-math specialist would understand. So, I mean, I, I am always a fan of having a lesson plan ready when I'm being observed so I can explain exactly what I'm trying to do with the lesson. But, well, two questions really. Do, do Ofsted need to see a lesson plan? And, and even if they don't, would you advise it for that very reason that you can you have that opportunity to explain what you're trying to do in the lesson? Well, you're right. Ofsted doesn't expect lesson plans, um, but most of the time when I'm inspecting, I get given them. So you know, it is, it is quite useful. But we don't expect teachers to do it because what we what we find is that teachers are writing lesson plans for when they're being inspected and they're not writing them the rest yes. of the time. They're usually held electronically and that sort of thing. But I think it would be, if you want to do it, then that's fine. Nobody's going to reject it, but you don't have to do it. And as I say, if you are observed, um, other than on a learning walk, you're going to have a conversation with the inspector anyway. So if there was, it, if there was something you wanted to say, you could say it. But if you felt more comfortable about just stepping out this is these are the sort of key points i want to make in this bit of the lesson 
I don't think you have to write some, you know, A4 document. <laughs> you know, so so uh, we don't expect it, but if you want to do it, you could do it. Got it. I think it's the best answer I can give. No, that's fine. That's that's perfect. Fantastic, Jane. Um, I want to move now, if it's all right, to, to, to speaking about we've kind of really hammered home about about lessons. But I want to look at kind of maths departments in, in general here, because, again, as well as obviously observing thousands of lessons, you must have been in hundreds, if not thousands of schools and, and seen maths departments in, in yeah. operation. So I wonder what few would be the features of a, of a well-run maths department, perhaps in terms of management or leadership or, or however, however you want to interpret it? Oh, right. So we're talking secondary now, aren't we? Yeah, really? if that's okay. Yep, yep. Um, rather than a, a primary school. So subject leader, head of head of maths. Yes. Um, oh, features of a, a good practice. Well, well run suggests management to me. So well run would be well organised, um, teamwork, uh, consistency. Um, so... People, people sharing things. So you might have teachers working in pairs to, to share planning, for example, good quality schemes of work, um, well-organised assessment systems, mechanisms for sharing good practice, this sort of thing. Leadership dimension is where I would place the insight. Yes. So leadership should be well-informed, current, you know, well-informed currently, um, Strong subject knowledge, pedagogic skills that help you know to permeate what goes on in the department. Um, a really strong curriculum with documents or other materials that support teachers. Uh, somebody who, who really knows what's working well, what is working less well, knows how to improve it and put that into place. Um, a, a knowledge that. Uh, what happens in the lessons in classrooms is probably the most important thing. Yes. Uh, we mentioned courage. I think courage is something I, I love to see. So actually standing up to senior leaders when, when they're trying to impose in-depth marking once every six weeks or something. <laughs> um, you know, so, so being prepared to say, you know, this is what's right in mathematics. Ooh, I could go on forever. <laughs> I think one of one of the things you've said there's really really struck a chord with me, and this that's that knowledge of what's going on in lessons because that that's difficult, I think, and we we've struggled with this sometimes in, in our school that we've working with the subject leader we, we've devised some ideas and strategies and we've presented them to staff in departmental meetings but it's one thing kind of doing that but it's another thing actually making sure it's happening consistently consistently in lessons yeah. and, it, and it's going particularly well and it's having a positive impact on learning so uh, again what, how can subject leaders do that Jane what, what, what is an effective way for subject leaders to make sure that the right thing is happening in lessons what, what have you seen that works well there I think um, trust is is important between members of the department and subject leader. Um, so if if you've got good relationships and good trust, then talking to each other and finding out how things are going will will be part of knowing how well it's working. And then using the sort of standard monitoring mechanisms of lesson observation or learning walks, um, works group to me, talk to groups of pupils. You know, those sorts of things can all feed into that sort of information, 
Is that a sort of thing you meant, Craig? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And yeah, no, that, that's perfect. And I wonder just, 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 just trying to tap into your experience here, Jane. Any other general piece of advice? We have a lot of subject leaders who listen to this podcast. Um, any other piece of advice of, of things that they can do that you've you found particularly effective uh, within maths departments? Right. I'd just like to say, I think being a math subject leader is one of the best jobs going. It's not as good as the job I've got, but it's, um, <laughs> I think it's probably second to that. I think it's a fantastic job. Uh, one of the things I think is important um, in terms of the mission of a of a subject leader would be that usually most subject leaders I meet are pretty good maths practitioners. And I think it's a math subject leader's job to not just be a really good teacher of mathematics in their own classes but it's their job to make teaching of mathematics as good as possible in every other class in the school so so that I think is a, is, is a mission really for all math subject leaders working collaboratively with staff and, and getting senior leaders on board is a real challenge so I don't know um, obviously different schools work in different ways in terms of line management but Having an opportunity to do joint observations or joint monitoring with um, the line manager so that the senior leaders in the school get insight into what's important in teaching and learning mathematics, I think is really important. And then growing future leaders uh, is, is another aspect. So can you do something jointly with other members of the department or having pairs of people so if you're going to do work scrutiny don't just do it yourself as subject leader but actually involve different people within your department in doing it or or do it as a whole department but set the agenda today we're going to look at year seven books when we've all taught such and such a topic so we're going to look at this i'm going to look at problem solving look at reasoning look at our curriculum documents etc so sort of working collaboratively uh another bit of advice might be a lot of schools have difficulty recruiting maths teachers. Yes. Um, and they might have a number of non-specialists. At one stage in my large department, I had five non-specialists introducing to mathematics. It was a big department with um, ten math specialists and then five non-specialists doing part-time. But I paired up um, each non-specialist had a buddy specialist and to, to help with joint planning for um they had adjacent classes or parallel classes yes. uh and i think now if i was had a math these days i might go for par- parallel setting for the hierarchical i'm not recommending setting often <laughs> doesn't have a view on setting but if you do set rather than set, say one to eight or one to twelve as we had at one time um i would go two lots of one to four or some some sort of uh, more breadth in, in the setting and then pair teachers up across the two set twos, the two set twos or three set twos or something so that you can share the expertise yes. together. Uh, you know, because uh, my experience, a lot of non-specialist teachers have got good generic teaching skills but they don't have the math subject knowledge and pedagogic skills necessarily and can benefit from working alongside another t- a maths teacher to, to get those and improve what's going on in, in the lessons. 
Absolutely. Now that that that's great advice, Shane. And I wonder if you have some other advice for for the line managers that that you talked about, who are possibly in senior leadership. More often than not, in senior leadership, but have um, responsibility for line managing maths departments. And uh, you mentioned, and I, I know she'll be listening to this. Our line manager, um, Andrea. She's a, she's a, so hello, Andrea. Uh, she's a non math specialist, but she line manages mm-hmm. us. Um, what advice do you have for those line managers? And is it different whether they are math specialists or, as is probably more often the case, non-math specialists? They're quite often they're non-math yeah. specialists, in, in my experience. Um, and they, they don't always know what's, what's important in teaching and learning mathematics. Um, so they're not aware about problem solving and they're not aware about reasoning and they're not aware necessarily about progression, so linking learning from one lesson to the next lesson, from one topic to another topic. So um, there was a school I was at, I think it was, it was perhaps a required improvement or something, and I was doing a monitoring inspection, and I was doing joint observations with, with the line manager, the senior leader, and that person didn't, couldn't see the issues or the good practice couldn't distinguish between those across the different lessons that we observed and the reason she was she, she was she was picking up the generic features but not understanding the math subtleties yes. and um and i what they did afterwards was that they then had some of their observations within jointly with senior lead, with subject leaders so they introduced a system in the school across the school across subjects where some of the observations were done in pairs with post holders in that subject, so that the post holders could say, "This is what I would expect, you know, to see," or "This is not what I would expect," or "This is, you know, really quite a difficult topic, and the approach it used is very good." And they, they they developed that aspect of that particular school, which supported both the middle leaders and also the senior leaders in getting better quality. Um, monitoring going on so i thought that was quite a useful strategy really at that school yeah that that sounds Mm -hmm. that sounds very sensible no that's perfect thank you jane for that and Oh, the final thing I want to kind of final section of this interview before I hand over to you for a few uh, reflections is about curriculum. And first, yeah. I, I just want to ask you, why is curriculum kind of become the the centre of, of Ofsted's current focus? And is that right to say it, say it is? Is curriculum kind of bang at the centre now? It is bang at the centre at the moment. And it comes through from the real interest of our newish chief inspector, Majesty's Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman, who has uh, commissioned um, a curriculum survey uh, in Ofsted. So that's why we're focusing at the moment on the curriculum. But I have to say that the longer I do this job as NAS National Lead, and actually as one of Her Majesty's Inspectors, the more important I think the curriculum is. Because as she said, it's it's the sort of real substance of education. It's what it's the imparting of knowledge and understanding to sort of future generations and about equipping them for the for the future. Uh, so I do think it's really important, and therefore I welcome very much this sort of focus we've got on the curriculum. And actually, this morning, at the time of uh, recording this, um, we've uh, published Ofsted has published an early years um, report on the early years curriculum today. I can't remember what it's called. It's got bold beginnings or something i could look that up anyway uh, but i've been published today about the, the curriculum in the early years 
And so, so that's why we've got the focus at the moment. And can I ask Jane again? This is this is me being thick here. But how would you um how would you kind of define the difference between say a curriculum and a scheme of work? Because for me, there there are similarities to them, but there are obviously key key differences. Well, well, so so if we've got a teacher listening here who's perhaps as uninformed as I am, what's the difference there between and in particular the control an individual school can have over say a curriculum and a, and a scheme of work? Ah, right, okay. Well, I hope I get this right. <laughs> um, I think one of the difficulties is that we don't always have a shared language, you know, sure, in the education. Course. And sometimes we can, like we were talking about the hows and the whys earlier on, yes. you know, sometimes we can use words in different ways. And I know when I did some of the visits investigating the curriculum, uh, survey visits last, uh, last term, um, you know, I was asking about aims of the curriculum and what does the curriculum mean. And all the schools I spoke to saw the curriculum as being everything that the school did, basically. So yes. it included all the extracurricular intervention and all the rest. Um, in terms of maths curriculum versus maths scheme of work, I would say the maths curriculum is, is the sort of intended curriculum. So the national curriculum or the GCSE specifications or A-level specifications um, so I would call that as setting out the defined curriculum. And then I would see the scheme of work as being how the school intends to implement that curriculum. So yes. it's the vehicle for towards planning. So it's setting out um, how we need to do it. So, for instance, um, the statutory requirement is to teach the content of the national curriculum within a key stage, so not yearly so in primary you don't have to teach the year three curriculum in year three you have to teach it by the end of the stage two for instance um so so that's the scheme of work is to, is to map out how the school decides to put the curriculum together and deliver it, Got it. but i think a, a scheme of work can also and should um provide guidance for teachers as to how to deliver it it shouldn't just be a list of content in my view because if it's just a list of content it's not very different from the actual curriculum itself no i i I, give some guidance on that on how to deliver it yeah i completely agree on that jane i'm a little bit obsessed with with schemes of work so I, i again i imagine you've seen hundreds if not thousands of them is there is there any kind of particular features of a a math scheme of work that have stood out for you as being particularly impressive Oh, you're right, I have seen a lot, although I tend to see fewer these days because they tend to be electronic. So unless you actually get a teacher to open up their computer and show you, um, you know, they're not as visible as they they used to be in terms of paper, which is probably a good thing. And it makes them more likely to be living documents, I think, if they're electronic, because you can modify them, update them. But one of the things that we used to do, mass survey visits, we don't do them anymore, um, because many sort of got tighter over the years. But, um, you know, I used to sit there with a with a head of maths and I'd say, OK, I'm, uh, good news is I'm your supply teacher for next week and I'm going to be teaching <laughs> year eight, set three. Um, can you show me what I've got to teach them? And, you know, in the scheme of work, show me, you know, and then they'll show me the scheme of work and, and I'll play devil's advocate on it <laughs> and I will say, um, you know, OK, now... Oh, yes, it's such and such um, linear equations. Um, now, do you want me to teach that? I can't see from the scheme of work. Am I supposed to be doing um, 
uh, applying inverse operations or do you want me to use a balancing method? Or have you got, when the Indians go over the bridge, they turn into cowboys? Or <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, so I, I'm deliberately being difficult in a way and saying, do you want me to do this approach or that yes. approach or the other approach? And, and usually what I'm trying to do is show that if I was a non-specialist or an inexperienced teacher, I don't know from the scheme of work Obviously, I can talk to somebody, sure. uh, but I don't know from the scheme of work what sort of approach. And the important thing for that is, later on, when we come to do, say, rearranging, uh, changing the subject of a formula, the approach I'm going to use for solving linear equations will, will underpin um, or, or should link to making the sub- changing the subject of a formula. Um, it should link to solving inequalities. Um, I've got some intense equations later, you know, so for the progression, how I teach something earlier is going to feed through to later. Absolutely. So, but but on the other hand, I don't want, uh, I wouldn't want schools to spend aeons writing down all of the methods, but thinking about in a school, how do we, how are we going to teach manipulative algebra in our school in order to get good progression and consistency? When we come to expand brackets, are we all going to do foil? Yes. Or are we going to do a multiplication grid? Or, you know, and then how are we going to teach factorisation? So do I get any hints from the scheme of work or have any documents or anybody I can go and talk to if I was a teacher, you know, about those things? So it's not just the document itself. It's, it's all that's wrapped around it and how it sits in the CPD and stuff like that as well. It's, it's interesting, Jane. Sense? Yeah, it makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. And it's, it's, it's just reminding me of something. I, again, I'd be interested in your view on this, that when I spoke to both Danny Quinn and Greg Ashman and, and even Chris Bolton to a certain extent, they were very much in favour of centrally planned lessons where the kind of head of departments, perhaps working with another another member of staff, essentially plans out, not, not necessarily scripts, but very plans out in great detail the examples that are going to be used uh, the exercises kids are going to be given um, and then that is given to all say year eight teachers and then it's the next topic to all year nine teachers and so on and and the kind of uh, rationale for that is that um, it may it ensures consistency across the department it also helps inexperienced teachers um, focus on other things for example behavior management and consistent routines as opposed to spending all their time thinking through misconceptions and all this kind of thing that are perhaps more difficult to do until you've got a bit more experience do you have a, a view whether it's Hofstede's or, or just your own personal view Jane on this because I'm torn on this what's your view on that should, should teachers be planning their own lessons every every teacher or is there a place for kind of these centrally planned lessons I think there's definitely a place for those centrally planned lessons but a lot would depend on on your particular school setting, I think, and the expertise of your staff. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't um, want to recommend that sure. that was the route for all schools. I think if there was centrally planned stuff, that that should be the starting point. So teachers should feel they could adapt it, as, you know, accordingly. Um, but you know, if, if the school policy is going to be that we're all teaching this and we're all teaching it in the same way then there shouldn't be very much variation away from it. But then we've also got a generation, I think, of teachers who've never had to plan from a curriculum document. 
yes. and haven't had to think for themselves about progression, uh, by which I mean the journey along strands of mathematics. So, so I think we've got quite a few um, teachers who aren't skilled in planning the curriculum. So the danger with the head of maths and one other person perhaps doing all the planning is that nobody then learns how to plan you know, the curriculum, I don't mean individual lessons, but actually how do you put it all together so that you get the sequences of learning. And can so, I ask Janet... There are the pros and cons, I think, to that. And just on that, with, with your kind of vast experience, have you noticed a kind of a trend over the last few years that planning's got worse almost because of the abundance of resources that are available because a teacher can go onto the TES Maths website or go onto Joe Morgan's Resourceaholic or wherever and find a brilliant one-off mystery or jigsaw for doing fractions of an amount and a, a Tarsia for this and a, a treasure hunt for that that we haven't got this sequence of lessons we haven't got this ability to write well varied questions and so on has there, has there been a trend that whilst there's been more math resources available that the teachers ability to plan in maths has got worse over the last say 10 15 20 years oh gosh um i, I don't know if it's got worse i think there's more choice yes and um and it's difficult i think for teachers to to know what's going to be good quality. There's a, there's a danger. It depends which way round it is. If, if the teacher's clear about what the learning is and then they look for the resource to go with that learning, yes. that's fine. But if they see something that looks fun and they think, I'll have that, and then they, <laughs> and then they plonk that and that becomes the learning, then that, I don't think, is fine because then it becomes out, it's not a sequence of learning. Yes. So... So the resources should be enriching the main thread of the curriculum, not just ad hoc creating the curriculum. Does that make sense? That way, you know, so it's which way yes. it comes, really. That, um, I mean, yeah. the two you cited would be quite safe places to look, but there are other places that aren't so good to, to pick up resources. And that's, uh, again, some schemes of work I've seen have suggested resources you know, um, as one of the columns in the sort of easy set out as a table, you know, um, so there might be resources that teachers can use that go with teaching those particular topics. That seems to be quite a common approach. So if there was a really nice, you know, thing on fractions or something and, and, and it was good quality, then I would want to see that added into the to the scheme. Um, in the days when I was head of maths, I was lucky that the, some of my staff would take responsibility for recording adding in of resources for particular year groups so that the scheme became sort of richer as we sort of went through um, but that again was about people working as a team yes got it no that, that that's fantastic that jane and just a couple more on on curriculum for me I'm, I'm assuming that this is going to be a one-word answer but i may be wrong um you mentioned it before i think um ofsted's view on mixed ability versus setting is are you happy with either there Yep. Yeah. We we don't have a preferred arrangement. Perfect. And can I just ask, just uh, just for you personally, when you were teaching, because I'm, I'm, this is something I'm going to dig into um, in 2018 on the podcast. I've got a few guests lined up on this. I had a definite preference um, for teaching setted. Did you did you teach both in your career, and did did you find either more challenging? Um, I almost always taught setted groups in certainly in secondary um except 
when I was headed my screen and actually no, two two of the schools I think I taught mixed ability in year seven. Um, so for part of the time when I was at maths, we had mixed ability in year seven, and for another school I worked in, we had mixed ability for the whole of year seven. Uh, I did used to find it quite difficult um, to teach the mixed ability in comparison to teaching setting, but I wouldn't want that to be a recommendation from us. No, no, um, no, no, of course. But I think, I think one of the things I think that's different now and will be different progressively is that as the curriculum in the primary school as, as a sort of a more of a mastery approach is adopted in primary schools, the curricular experiences of pupils as they leave primary and into secondary, they will they will come in with a with a closer, a better aligned um, experience of the curriculum. Their attainment will still vary, probably not as much as it varied used to vary. So that I think the seven year gap in the beginning of secondary perhaps will should narrow if if a mastery curriculum works in primary. Um, I think the thing I would do differently now if I was ahead of my now is and I think I mentioned this before, would um, I would go for more parallel setting. I wouldn't go for a hierarchical setting. I would gradually make my sets more mixed ability if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so I would get a but I would still hold them together as a as a class in terms of the conceptual development. So I've oh, had a sort of a mastery approach in a slightly um, wider than a strict hierarchical set. Got it. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes yeah. perfect. <laughs> Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And you, you've teed us up perfectly, Jane, for, for, for this next question. And that's what Sofsteads Beyond Mastery? Because you, you've mentioned it a few times um, throughout, throughout this. And it's one of those things that obviously is massive in primary schools. It's, it's in, yeah. I don't know, the majority of secondary, but it's, it's certainly the vast majority of teachers would have at least heard of it. I think it's one of the most misunderstood things that I've, I've ever heard in, in kind of my career. But what, what Sofsteads Beyond Mastery? Okay, um... When I'm talking about mastery in conferences and things, I sort of because I don't know where people are starting from yes. in terms of my talks, um, I always try to mention that mastery is not about the elite because we've got, you know, when you talk about master classes or grandmasters of chess, you're talking about the elite, whereas yes. mastery in mathematics, the sort of movement towards mastery, is not about the elite. It's about um, all pupils having sufficient mastery so that they are ready for the next stage and can build on their learning. And Ofsted's view on mastery is um, aligns with the discussion within those useful assessment booklets that's produced by the NCETM, where there's a really useful discussion, I think, at the beginning of those, each of those six booklets for years one to six. It's the same discussion in each of them. Uh, they, they separate it into four strands that talk about um, a mastery approach, which is about the sort of underpinning principles of the approach of mastery, a mastery curriculum that's um, got the concepts and the knowledge for all pupils. It's not differentiated so different pupils learn different mathematics. Uh, and then the characteristics of teaching for mastery, sort of pedagogical sort of practices. And then what it means to master something, so the achieving mastery. And I think that discussion is really useful. And I've used that discussion 
in some of the training I've done for inspectors, but we haven't yet completed that for all inspectors, and we've got more to do on that. So, so what Ofsted is saying about mastery and understanding that mastery aligns with the discussion of the NCETM and the maths hubs. So I think you know this, this, it's not different. Ofsted's view isn't different from from the NCETM and the maths hubs. Do you do you see because this, this, my experience of it has been that when mastery's kind of done well, and I've spoke to Mark McCourt about this, and hopefully I'll get I'll get him back on the podcast to, to dig into it more. It's done particularly well in in pri- a lot of primary schools I've seen, and it's also done well kind of early key stage three, kind of year seven and eight. But I don't know if this has been your experience, Jane. But then I tend to see year year nine possibly, but certainly is ten and eleven. Very rarely do I see a mastery approach there. Then it tends to go into almost kind of falls back onto the old routines of, right, okay, GCSEs are coming in a couple of years. Let's just go through the GCSE scheme of work um, as we always have done and so on. Have you seen mastery done well in Key Stage 4? I don't think I have, but I don't think I've seen it done badly either. I don't think I've seen mastery approaches used in Key Stage 4, but I think the thing that's probably links a bit to mastery um, that I have seen is I've seen less differentiation in key stage four so I've seen the holding the class together right um, okay. whereas in the past there used to be extra activities for some students and extra support for other students you know and sometimes doing different bits of math sometimes you'd see different bits of math being done in the in the same secondary classroom so I think some of the characteristics of teaching for mastery are sort of feeding through, but but GCSE still is a dominant driver, isn't it? Yes. When you say you've seen it in key stage three, is that through mixed ability teaching, or have you seen it um, in individual sort of sets? A bit, bit of both, to be honest with you. As I say, mi- mixed ability is one of the things I'm. It's a weak, weak area of mine, Jane. It's something I'm. I, I want to get good at. So, um, from what I've, from what I've seen, when it, when it's done well, it's been particularly effective in in mixed ability. But I've also seen it done done well in sets. But I've also seen, and again, Mark McCourt talks about this. People essentially just dipping into it, saying, "Oh, I'm doing mastery on a Wednesday," or "This is a mastery lesson," and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah. is you, if you if you're in it, you've got to be in it fully. I, I think it's. Um, uh, I agree, yeah. And I think that's certainly, I think that's something, and I'm generalising here, but I think that's something that a lot of secondaries have have not quite grasped, the fact that it is a a whole kind of change of ethos and you can't just dip into it. That's right, that's right. It's an actual approach. I think that's the thing, you know, for me, it's it's, it's an approach and therefore you go for it whole hog, really. um, Absolutely. If you're going to to do it, you know. One of the difficulties, I think, for secondaries is that the pupils in those secondary schools haven't followed the mastery approach throughout their primary education yes so whereas in the past when a new curriculum was introduced um it used to be introduced on a rolling basis right this was introduced more or less as a single dollar except for year two and six and then they were they were then introduced the next year so primary schools a couple of years ago were having some difficulty because people say in year four were suddenly faced with a year four program of study um, and yet they haven't done the earlier approaches so i think we've still got some feeding through to do so i think as as time goes on if mastery becomes more and more successful then i say people's experience 
on arrival at secondary will be will form a much more common basis for for them taking a mastery approach forward. Whereas any school, say teaching key stage four at the moment, those people won't have done mastery at of all course, at primary school. Course. So so it's much more divergent. And also the key stage four curriculum is the only one that is differentiated. So when you look at the national curriculum and you look at GCSE specs, there is differentiation there in terms of the content. So it's the only yes. stage where there's differentiation by content um, as well. That's interesting. And I guess kind of related to that, I know this is something you wanted to, to mention, Jane. We, we've kind of talked about ability th throughout this interview, really. Yeah. And I know I know Ofsted uses those, the, the, the phrase is more able and less able. Um, yeah. What does Ofsted mean by that? Okay, thanks for asking that one, Craig, as well, because it's something that I've been saying quite a lot about when I when I can, and it's really historical that the phrasing that Ofsted uses for most able, more able, least able, less able. What they what they really mean is uh, it's a shorthand for for the most able. It's the highest prior attaining. So right. when we talk about the most able pupils. In general, what's meant is those who have done their best previously, um, because we can't can't measure ability. And I've raised there there is a, an issue in terms of mastery because mastery challenges this idea that that maths ability is innate and you can't do anything about it. And the, the principle is that all people can succeed, or pretty well all people can succeed. And it's about how do you teach them in order to give them that sufficient mastery? Some will go to greater depth, you know. So, so there's and growth mindset approaches and things are challenging ideas of ability anyway. So, my suggestion to maths community is to interpret more able, most able by highest or higher prior attaining, and likewise for the less and least able. It doesn't mean okay. to say that they are their future is determined by that label. Got it. Yeah, that's that's cleared that one up, Jane. That makes that makes perfect sense. Thank that you. one. <laughs> and the uh, my final question. And the rest doesn't, but that did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not at all. And the uh, my final question on this before we just do a couple of reflections is um, again when I heard you speak at the conference in London, you um, you spoke about uh, Ofsted's evidence on transition from primary to secondary, and th this is something again that sounds like I'm obsessed by everything, but I certainly am um, on this. I I don't think I've particularly done transition well. I don't think I particularly teach year seven well in those first kind of couple of weeks so what what is what is the evidence and what what for you have you seen that makes kind of a successful transition okay thank you very much yes we did have a look um oh, so just over a year ago now so it's about 18 months ago in primary schools and also in um in secondary schools in the autumn term so we we visited and talked to primary schools in the summer term and then some of the partner secondary schools and some other secondary schools in in the autumn term. The, we were talking about academic transition, so I'm not talking about uh, pastoral dimensions, which are important, but I was looking at how well the, the pupils in mathematics and also my colleagues, Sarah Hubbard, did the same for English, how well do they progress from primary to secondary schools in those two subjects? And what we found out was that um, in primaries, the, the teachers generally know 
pretty well how well each individual child is doing in different areas of mathematics. They were better at knowing about their skills than they were about their ability to problem solve and reason, but but they still had a lot of information. And when we asked, you know, well, how much of this do you pass on to the secondary schools? The answer is really, well, nothing, none of the granular detail at all. Um, and when we talked to the secondary schools, they said they just got the data, the raw data or the scaled data. Um, for me, transition is about there are two things that I think we could do better. And I don't think I did this particularly well when I was out of math, but I think, <laughs> I think nationally we could do better. And the first element, I think, is how ready is the pupil for the next stage? Mathematically, how, how ready mathematically is the pupil ready for the next stage? And that's about have they got that sufficient mastery ready to build on? And then the second element is the receiving teacher. How well does the receiving teacher know what the pupil knows, understands and can do and then builds on that prior learning in mathematics? And I think both of those things could be better. Um, and actually, even though we talked about and we looked at key stage two to three, those two things are equally important from one year to the next one teacher to the next as yes. well as school to school and actually you can drill it right down you can say well actually that's the same for topic to topic and lesson to lesson so it's about readiness all the time and then building on it you know uh, what, so when we talk you, go on yeah sorry jen i was just just going to ask kind of practically there what what you said that you, you didn't feel you did it particularly well as a head of maths what what what, what practically would you do then different now what would I do differently now? Well, I think um, one of the things we didn't have was any sort of question level analysis. Um, so um, I don't know where you find it now, though, because um, I can't mention commercial vehicles. <laughs> but you used to be able to get it on raise online, so the schools probably know. But you could get, at the time we did this survey, question level analysis was available for every pupil uh, in year seven, just over a year ago. Um, so every single question they did on their key stage two maths test had been sort of analysed and you could get it for your whole class in, in uh, secondary school, you could get it for the whole cohort, you could do it by strand, you could do it by question. So you could actually see what our intake of pupils for the whole cohort and our intake of pupils for individual classes, this is what they were good at and this is what they found difficult. Um, and I would use that as to help starting points for teaching and taking the scheme of work forward for, for year seven. Um, so I think that's that's one thing I would do sort of differently. Can I just uh, say on, were, on that, yeah, can I, on. sorry Jane to yeah. interrupt you, just on that, I'm, again, another area of obsession is QLAs and after we've been getting on so well, we may fall out a little bit at the end here, Jane, on, on QLAs, because I think a, a danger okay. sometimes with those, and I see these misused a lot and I've been guilty of this, is that teachers kind of pin so much on question level analysis based on a single exam and I, I spoke to Daisy Christodoulou about this and a classic example would be to take your example there say for example uh, on the year six sats there was a question on fractions of an amount and a child got it wrong then all of a sudden we make that assumption that a child has no understanding of fractions of an amount and then there's some intervention happens or they're, they're put in a different class or a, or a kind of teacher starts goes back to basics does no actual assessment for learning no other collects no other 
other evidence of where they are, but just bases everything on, on that single question. And it may just have been a misreading of the question. It may have been a slightly difficult number. The child may just have made a simple slip or something like that. I just think, and again, I don't know if you agree with me, that sometimes we can we can read too much into uh, QLAs and, and make two kind of widespread assumptions based on what essentially is just a single answer to an exam on a particularly given day, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, I, I don't think we're going to fall out totally on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't. Uh, I, yes, I, I understand the the limitations of it, but if you've got um, a class where I don't know three quarters of the class were were, were had difficulty with the fraction question or yes. questions, yes. then then that gives you some information. That's data right. never gives you answers it only gives you sort of questions really but it, <laughs> it, it's flagged up now if everybody bar two did really well on the fraction questions then perhaps you don't need to retread quite as much of the territory you know nice. so it's how you use that information there was um one school uh that i one secondary school um all the all the teachers had got the sort of analyses for the classes they were going to be teaching so that they you know got that information but they were also using it for intervention so the the children in that school year seven children who got scored i think between 96 and 99 the um the questions they had had difficulty with and you're quite right they might just have misread them but the teachers knew those particular questions and then what they were doing over the period of that term or so was just spending a little bit of extra time with that child on that topic just to make sure that yes. there weren't any significant gaps so that was down to individual teachers and then for the 95 i think it wasn't below they had some additional intervention going on but the interventions were based on the not individual questions but they were grouped you know the strand questions where the All strands right. were weakest to put extra support in for those children which i thought was interesting use of the QLA in that particular school. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, so I thought that was interesting. Um, what else did we see? Uh, sometimes secondary schools had samples of children's work that came up with them, or books and things like that, but that was tended to be a minority of schools. Um, one school, the, the children all brought with them their best piece of English writing, and um, some problem solving, I think enriched problem solving in maths, and the school um, duplicated those, and they were stuck in the front of children's books, not just for English and mathematics, but for other subjects, so that all the secondary teachers, say for history, knew what the best piece of writing looked like for that child That's when nice. they were in primary. And uh, in science, they knew what they could solve problems on in maths, for example. So I don't know whether they, all teachers got both subjects or whether they got the one that was closest allied to theirs. That's so there was that idea. as well, which I thought was really nice. Yes. Um, half of the secondary subject leaders I spoke to didn't even know that the QLA existed for, um, <laughs> yep. for, for, the, second, for the primary tests. Um, almost all of them tested on arrival. Yes. Um, and then set it on that. And when I asked uh, a question, uh, one of the questions I asked them was, were there any groups who did less well um, in, their, in, their, in their assessment on arrival with you than they had, that might be suggested by their Key Stage 2 results? And they hadn't um, 
understandable. They hadn't analysed that, but they tended to say, well, the, the high attainers tended to do well on both systems, but then it sort of tended to open up a bit. And one of my concerns is that, and I don't know the answer to this, um, is whether disadvantaged pupils, when retested on arrival in year seven, do relatively worse than their peers on the reassessment and then end up in a lower set than they might have done otherwise if they were settled just on the yes. piece of two and whether that's one of the impediments to their better achievement. I don't know. None of them had looked at that. Some of them said they would go ahead and have a look at it. But I do wonder about retesting and I have been known to stand on the stage and say don't do it um, <laughs> you know use the information you've got from primary and then assess as you're going along and um, but don't don't retest and when when secondary schools complain and they say oh you know but we can't trust the we can't trust the key stage two results which is quite a popular statement I then say well okay suppose you have year 11 pupils going off to a college what would you feel like if the college <laughs> gave your your ex year 11s their GCSE papers again when they arrive in September? How well do you think they would do? Yes. You know, so it's the same thing. Um, but the building for the future is, is really, really important part of the of the transition, I think. That is interesting. That that that's very interesting. And again, just just on that, Jane, before I, I, sh I shut up and just ask you a, a couple more reflections, um, did you find as well that kind of the the the, the key stage two results um, uh, becomes like a, a level and like it's seven point two or whatever, and that that then gets translated into a GCSE target on the new one to nine system that a child kind of has and that they've got that in year seven. And it's like a, a burden around the neck that they've done particularly well in the SATs. So all of a sudden they've got a level eight or they've had a bad day on the SATs and they've got a level five. And that kind of just sits with them throughout the whole of the year, throughout the whole of their kind of next five years. And also, the, I don't know what your view is on, on kind of set changes, like how, how frequently students should be moved when it turns out that they're not in the appropriate set, because there's kind of pros to, to, to moving kids around when you find out that actually they're, they're achieving more than, than you thought they would do and need to be challenged a bit more. But there's also cons in the terms of the, the time it takes them to adjust to having a new teacher and, and, and all that, the kind of knock-on effects in terms of behaviour and the dynamic of the class and all that kind of stuff. Well, is it a case of that we should kind of, and I know you can't say a definitive answer here, but we should take into account the key stage two SAT score as secondary teachers, set according to that, and then try and keep things as consistent as possible? Or should we be kind of looking to move things around when, when it turns out that we haven't got things quite right? I, I think you're right. There's no one single right answer. Um, I think if, if there was a one answer, we'd have, we'd have found it by now. <laughs> yes, we'd yes. do it, I think, probably. But I, I think you're right, there are various dangers associated with setting. And of course, the people who, some people don't believe in setting at all. Absolutely. You know, some evidence. And, you know, so, but I think the majority of secondary schools do set. Um, when I was head of maths, so before my Ofsted role, um, we set on the basis of Key Stage 2, and then we assessed you know ongoing assessment but this issue about moving sets is, is a difficult one because if a pupil's doing well they're responding to their particular teacher yes um do you then change teachers so yep. you know a move up and then 
if they're following, if they're not doing exactly the same material, there will be a gap if they move up. Yep. Um, so how do they catch up with the gap? Um, if they if they move down um, sets, then you get the they're demotivated, um, possibly. Um, it might be that they've just had a bad time and perhaps they should be in a higher set. It's, it's difficult. I, I think that moving too frequently um, uh, is probably not a good idea. And I think that as if, you know, I was saying that if I was teaching now, I'd have broader sets. Yes. Then there would be less need to move yeah, people from course. set to set. But, but by the time you get to GCSE, it is differentiated. So if a, if a, if a child starts an I set and goes to a middle set, then they may end up at a different tier than perhaps they should have done initially. Yes. Um, so it's about being ambitious as, as ambitious as possible for each individual child and then overall for cohorts, really, and, and not making decisions too early. I do worry about this, you know, setting targets from, from year seven. And I know the chief inspector is not keen on setting targets from year seven as well. Um, some of them, when I have seen people doing this, just are not ambitious enough anyway. And then, then there's a danger of sentencing them to something that's not good enough. But yes. it's, it, um, it's quite an industry. And again, there's no simple answers to it. But God, I, no. I, I am, like you, I'm concerned about labels. I'm also concerned about the labels when they're based on average points as opposed to math to maths. I would prefer to work oh, of course. Absolutely. and be as ambitious as possible, you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I want people to do as well as they possibly can, you know, and anything that gets in the way of that needs to be tackled, really. Absolutely. Well, no, that's that's fantastic, that Jane. And well, last one now. That's time for your reflections before I hand over to you for your big three. So just just two questions for you, but they're quite tricky ones. And the first is, if you mm. were to give math teachers three pieces of advice, this is based on all your years of experience, Jane. What would they be? Oh, right. I have thought about this one because I knew you were going to ask me about this one. Um, and I think top of my list has to be teach for understanding. Um, don't teach tricks, teach for understanding. Even when you're under pressure to produce exam results and uh, whatever else, in the long term, teaching for understanding is the best. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, these aren't in order of priority. Well, that one sure. is, that's top of the list. <laughs> I think um, accompanying that is this, what we were talking about, choosing the questions and exercises carefully. Yes. Um, you know, and if you set problems, milk every problem for all it's worth. So don't just rush to the answer. But you know, if there's alternative approaches, or um, you know, do do get discussing that. And um, and then thirdly, it's quite different really from that. Is is let I've written down here in front of me to remind me. Uh, let your enthusiasm show. Yes. Uh, pupils like to be taught by people who are enthusiastic about the subject. It might be quite a dry enthusiasm, but they still they still like to to be taught by people who, who are enthusiastic. Um, and I think your enthusiasm shouldn't just be in the class. It should actually be with your colleagues. Um, it might be through membership of a subject association. Very few teachers are members of subject associations, but I think it would be well worth being one and I think they're, they're currently looking at possibly merging them so, yes. um, so that become much bigger uh, what about 
um, through online communities as well, you know, being enthusiastic. So, you know, really, really enjoying your mathematics. I'm still learning my mathematics, you know, school mathematics, I'm still learning stuff about it all the, all the time. And you can learn from other people. So I think keeping your enthusiasm going. Somebody once said to me when a uh, senior leader, when they interview art teachers for art posts, um, that teachers usually bring their portfolio of personal art with them to show. And they and, I, and I've never thought to ask um, when interviewing for maths teachers, actually, what mathematics are you working on at the moment? Yes. You know, um, so I, th- I think that might be one that if I had a wish list of three, let let your enthusiasm shine. Might be my third one. That's great advice, Jane. I absolutely love those. And yeah, just on that enthusiasm thing, I've, I've spoken about this before. I I tended to I tended to be dead enthusiastic and admit that I loved maths when I was teaching the top sets. But whenever I had like a middle ability year eleven on a Friday afternoon, mm. and they're like it was a, the lads who liked the football and the girls who were thinking where they were going out that Friday night and so yeah. on, I felt out of place being like the big maths geek and stuff. And I used to kind of almost play down my love of the subject and say, "Come on, I know it's not fun this, but we're just going to battle through. We've got to do it." And I reached the conclusion it just doesn't work. Like it's not sustainable. Mm. It may buy you five or ten minutes worth of extra effort in a lesson. Yeah. But you can't just keep falling back on that. And now I just admit it. Like I'm an absolute nerd when it comes to maths. I absolutely love it. And I think, sure, some kids are going to look at you thinking, God, you're a bit weird. But it's th- that enthusiasm becomes contagious. And it's nice yeah. for students to be taught by someone who genuinely enjoys what they're doing. And but after yeah. all, it's, it's our career. That's why we've chosen to do it. So, yeah, that's one thing I've definitely taken away these last few years i don't hide my love of maths from anybody and it's i think that's a really yeah. important lesson you, you've you've mentioned there and it doesn't have to be the the hard stuff either no no you're the, right the, there's elegance and the simple stuff as well you know and, and the middle and lower attainers are, are going to be doing simpler stuff but there are still some really nice problems and puzzles and and just i mean why should it be that two odd numbers make an even number you know yes. for instance really really nice and there's so many different ways of looking at things like that and if you're enthusiastic about it it will rub off on them and they will they you know they might be a bit cynical about it at first if they're 14 and it's friday afternoon but if you're consistent with it i think you win through um, and it helps them to be keen about it then so yeah no, that's great advice, that Jane. And l- last question for me, and you've, you've kind of dropped a few of these throughout the interview, but I wonder if you had, uh, you just a, as a way of summarising, is there anything you wished you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Um, what a great career it is. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, how you can make a difference to pupils um, and their future lives. You know that it's not just the actual mathematics it's how it's the relationships you form and the trust they can get in you and and it can make a difference i think it can make a difference to their lives um i'm very glad i didn't know how hard work it was going to be the professional satisfaction i think the thing both in the job i currently do and being a maths teacher and then leader um, was the the sense of professional satisfaction that you get the 
um, that you get from pupils being able to understand and, be able and gain confidence and progress through their mathematical education and being part of that with them, I think is hugely rewarding. Um, so those are things I, I didn't know when I started what it was going to be like. And there's so much negativity, I think, around the hard work of teaching and the pressures of teaching. It's very easy to forget, actually, what a wonderful career it is and how it it's one of the privileged careers where you can make a difference to people's futures and and I think that's that's really important to to know um, so yeah oh, that's, that's probably not what you expected me to say no it's a great it's a, it's a great message that Jane. No, I'm very very happy with that and final thing is just just time for your big three so are there three websites or blog posts or whatever you want that you direct listeners to and I'll, I'll provide links to these in the show notes so over to you Jane for your big three okay so right, the big three well because um, I'm speaking on behalf of Ofsted and as one of Her Majesty's inspectors, I, I can't um, name ones that might have a, um, might show a preference for one over the other. So I'm going to stick to ones that are sort of in the public domain, really. So I think the NCETM, National Centre for Excellence Teaching Mathematics, and all the linked materials that are there, that website, that portal is is very rich i think and all linking through to the maths hubs from from there that is definitely would make it to my big three i have to stand up for ofsted and it's a long while since we've published a mathematics report but i think the mathematics made to measure report has still got some mileage in it yes it's, it's obviously it's now quite dated back into 2012 but there won't be another one well at least not that i can see coming um so i think I would recommend there are aspects of that, but remembering we no longer judge individual lessons. And then before that, we published various other reports, including understanding the score. And I think the second part of that report, there's still some useful material in there um, uh, for the understanding of the score. Uh, we published a report about our visit to Finland um, and a good practice in primary mathematics. So there's various Ofsted publications. And then I think the third one would be to recommend the subject associations. Um, so there are a host of subject associations in mathematics. The two that teachers most usually most know about would be the Mathematical Association and the ATM Association Teachers of Mathematics. And I think that, uh, you know, if you can get away at Easter to one of their conferences, I think that would be a very uh, enriching experience for teachers and um you know so i would recommend those as my big three i think they're brilliant selections jane and we'll, we'll put links to all those um in the show notes so all that remains for me to do is to to thank you for your time so as a first i just want to thank you for giving up many hours uh to, to talk to me here I've, I've loved every minute of this and i know it's going to go down a storm with with listeners um i've never had the pleasure of having one of my lessons observed by you jane but i know you have you've observed me giving a talk and you gave me two pieces of key feedback for, for even from that i don't think you could resist not to click through my slides so quickly and also you picked upon a, a misconception about uh, solving linear equations that I may be propagating through my presentation so you've even just from watching me there you've improved my presentation skills no end so as I say not lucky <laughs> enough to be observed by your teaching but I'm still benefiting from your wisdom so thank you for your time thank you for your, your honesty and your advice and it's, it's just been a pleasure speaking to you Jane. Well thank you very much for inviting me to do this and I thoroughly enjoyed it so thank you very much Craig. <laughs> 
There you have it. There was my interview with Jane Jones, the HMI national lead for mathematics. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely loved that interview. I mean, the first thing to say is just a big thank you to Jane for giving up her time. She joins a very exclusive club, the Three Hour Club. Current members are John Corbett and Danny Quinn, people whose episodes have crossed that magic three hour mark. And it's, I'm just so grateful to, to Jane and other guests who give up their time to speak to me. And the second thing to say is, again, I don't know about you, but, but I'm feeling positive at the res um, after that. Again, this may well just be me, but I often have a, a slightly negative view of view of Ofsted. I kind of see it as us versus them. I kind of see inspectors as so kind of out of the, the general day-to-day -day running of schools that, that they don't kind of realise the pressure that us teachers are under. But I didn't get that impression from Jane. Um, I get the feeling that Jane doesn't expect teachers to be at the top of their game every second of every minute of every day. She knows the pressure, she knows the time constraints, she knows the workload and so on. And what I was getting from Jane was was just not just empathy, but also kind of practical advice and and, and realistic expectations and, and ways to cope with that. And I, I just found that very, very, very reassuring. So I was happy with that. And um, in terms of takeaways, I kind of two or three from me that I just wanted to focus on here. The first is the Ofsted myths. I, I was determined to get those in. Just things that I've collected over the over the last few weeks and months when I knew Jane was gonna go on. I've asked teachers, what do you want me to ask Jane? And I rattled through that list and it, it was just, again, reassuring to know that Ofsted don't have a preferred teaching style. They're not bothered how your classroom's set up. They're not bothered if you use a worksheet as long as it's a good worksheet. They don't insist on group work. And um, marking was an interesting one, right? The fact that it's a whole school issue, that all Ofsted are bothered about when they watch your individual lesson, or are you following your whole school's policy? Now, what's interesting about that is, <laughs> it doesn't matter if your whole school uh, marking policy is terrible. As Jane said herself, it, it could be the worst one in the world that's causing you to work all Saturday, all Sunday, marking purple, marking green, switch to blue, do a bit of black, and all that kind of stuff. If that's what your school says, that's what you have to follow. So if there's a problem with the marking policy, it's not Ofsted insisting upon it, it's your school insisting upon it. And I, again, I, got, I go, back to, go back to Dylan William. The, the best feedback is that that makes students think. And that doesn't necessarily mean spending hours and hours and hours doing it on a Sunday. And I know that it's a case of we need to convince senior leadership about this, but we've heard it from Ofsted now, they're not bothered. Jane spoke about what the purpose of marking was, to understand where the students are and how to move them on, how to get their learning um, better. And in my interview with Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson about their book, What Does It Look Like in the Classroom? I spoke about in my takeaway at the end, how I've changed my marking to, to delay and reduce feedback. And it's had a massive impact both on, both on my work-life balance and the fact that it's making my students think more, which is the key to it. If kids aren't thinking, we're literally wasting our time. So that was something very important. The other thing that, that really stood out, I mean, there was tons in the interview, but, but this non-specialism. And I'm, I'm just so pleased that Jane was kind of honest and confronting this, because I've long suspected that if a non-math specialist observes you, you're gonna get a different viewpoint than if a specialist observes you. And it's just kind of obvious, right? And I think it's important that we need to make explicit what we're trying to do. I mean, to use a cliche, you've got to be proactive, not reactive. And Jane spoke about the fact that you've got an opportunity if you're observed during a learning walk or whatever it is, 
to speak to the offset inspector and almost argue your case. But my worry with that is there's kind of an opinion already formed in the um, inspector or the observer's mind at that stage. And it's very hard, we all know this, once you've, once you've made a first impression or formed a first opinion, it can be quite hard to change it. So the example I, I discussed with Jane there about choosing 10 questions on finding fractions of an amount that on the face of it look really boring and look like I've just grabbed them from the internet or whatever, but they've been carefully chosen so they've got variation. One thing stays, the, sorry, everything stays the same. One thing changes from question to question. So students form expectations about what the next answer is gonna be. And that's such a powerful thing, but it's subtle. It's subtle and a non-math specialist is not gonna pick up on that. So. I mean, I'm gonna say it, I always, always, always do a lesson plan if I'm being observed, whether I'm required to or not. And I'm gonna go further. I think I always include in my lesson plan, it's called a big picture. And I've kind of devised this myself. I mean, I'm building this up as if it's revolutionary. It's a flipping anti-climax this. But I do a big picture, which just gives me an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about the class. And I think that's important. I give a little bit of background, just a couple of sentences about where this class has been. So especially if it's early on in the year and I've just taken them over. Um, I spoke about a couple of times on the podcast, I, I inherited a year 11 class a couple of years ago and they'd had a ropey ride um, in years nine and 10. So if I was being observed in September or October, I would want the inspector to know a little bit about that class, to know that their confidence is low, to know that they're underachieving, to know that I'm purposely going a bit slower with them because I need to build their confidence up first. And that's not something that's immediately apparent if somebody just walks into the room, that's subtle. But I feel having that on a piece of paper and words that I've had chance to carefully consider the night before or whatever, just kind of, again, it's that proactiveness. It, it, it puts something in front of the observer or the inspector that says, all right, now I see what he's trying to do. And that's just as important when I'm des uh, planning out my examples and exercises. And Jane kept coming back to that. She said it two or three times, how important your choice of questions and the choice of examples is. And that's something I've been so slow to pick up on um, in my career, but I'm, I'm flipping all over it now. So if I've spent my time carefully selecting these questions and they don't look like they're the most exciting dynamic questions because the easiest thing in the world for a non-math specialist is to chuck in a load of real life, real world context because that that's brilliant because everyone thinks that's the best way to teach maths, right? Make it relevant to kids' lives. But no, load of rubbish. And again, it was ple pleasing to see that Jane spoke about the dangers of, of, of pseudo real life problems. So instead, if I'm carefully choosing these exercises with careful variation, then I'm gonna flip and tell the inspector what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I'm gonna put that in bold in my big picture, in my lesson plan. I'm gonna say something along the lines of, the 10 questions I've given the students may look a little bit dull, but I have carefully chosen them for this reason. There's one thing changes and everything else stays the same between question and question. This allows students to form expectations which are either realized or no realized, not realized, following the values and principles of variation theory. I'll write that down. And if the inspector's like, what the flipping heck is he going on about there? Then I'll have that conversation afterwards. But I'd rather them be wondering why I'm doing that than just looking at 10 questions, thinking they're a bit dull, and then me having to kind of justify that after the event, if that makes sense. Proactive, not reactive. So I always do a lesson plan and I always have a big picture. And then the final thing I just wanted to talk about is 
My band maths displays, I tell you what, I, I think I almost had Jane on board there. I'm thinking if Jane can take that to some senior Ofsted meeting, that could be a national requirement in a future Ofsted report. No maths displays in any classrooms. I can but dream anyway. But yeah, I really hope you enjoyed that, that interview. Once again, thanks so much to Jane for giving up her time. Um, yeah, it was just an absolute delight to speak to her. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that she uh, she accepted my invitation to come onto the podcast. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And the biggest thank you of all is to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping listening to these. Um, and please spread the word for this one because... I think it's a really positive message that comes out of it. And uh, yeah, I want enough people to hear about it that Ofsted, you know, I don't think it's too far to say that they're on our side. They they want what we want, and that's to improve teaching and learning, the best outcomes for our students. And I think that they're definitely moving in the right direction towards that with the, in terms of their expectations for math teachers. So please make sure that this, uh, this episode travels far and wide. Um, as I say, if uh, I don't want to, plug too much here but if you enjoyed this interview and you want to kind of support the podcast the easiest way to do that is just to snap up my book how i wish i taught maths it's, it's all the lessons i've learned over the last two years from speaking to people like jane doug lemov dylan william daisy christadulu chris bolton all the big names they've just taught me so much and i've tried to kind of write that down in a 500 and odd page 150,000 word epic so i really hope you enjoy that and i shall be back with some more phenomenal guests i'm incredibly lucky to do this job so Thank you for listening. Keep uh, helping spread the word. I'd really appreciate it. Take care of yourselves and I will see you shortly. Bye for now. <laughs>